Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, Blade Disgusting's horror video game podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger. And I'm the other one, Neil Paul. And this week, we're diving into the survival horror of The Evil Within 2 from developer Tango Gameworks. Picking up three years after the original Evil Within, and Sebastian Castellanos just can't seem to catch a break. Since the tragic events at Beacon Hospital, his daughter Lily has since died in a house fire and his wife has left. However, Castellanos' descent into alcoholism is interrupted when former partner and Mobius agent Julie approaches him claiming that Lily is actually alive and being used by Morbius as the new core for their STEM system, which is simulating a town called Union. And it's up to Sebastian to investigate Lily and Mobius agents' disappearance within Union. But it isn't just Neil and I navigating the inner horrors of the evil within two, as we're joined by the editor-in-chief of culturedvultures.com, Mr. Jimmy Donellan. Jimmy, welcome to the show, man. Hello. That's very upbeat of me. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> well, I assume it's because you're excited to be here and to chat about The Evil Within 2. <laughs> of course, of course. This is uh, a little bit surreal for me, to be honest with you. Uh, I, haven't, I don't think I've told you this, but uh, back when I was about 12 or so, I didn't I didn't live in like a house with internet and stuff. So I go to my friend's house, and when I was there, I discovered a website called Bloody Disgusting. So, And then I'd stay up until like... I'd make any excuse I could to go to my friend's house and then go onto the uh, the website forum and just argue with people pretty poorly. I was about 12. Right? <laughs> about uh, all all sorts of zombie movies all the time. So this is crazy for me. I used to be called Big Blue Man uh, from the based on Doctor <laughs> Manhattan. So yeah, this it's is crazy to me to be on here. So it's yeah. Well, I mean, me linking up with Neil, somebody that, you know, was uh, such an influence on my writing and stuff like that and, you know, Bloody Disgusting being that point of origin for me too, like in high school has been uh, likewise very surreal for me. But uh, I think before we dive into Evil Within 2 today, uh, we should all do sort of just a baseline of summarizing our time with uh, the original because as uh, we've all probably noticed on the internet, like people are of two minds of the first game and then the sequel. Uh, so I thought that would be a good starting point. So Jimmy, how was your time with the original Evil Within? Well, to just uh, go on what you said, though, I find that very interesting that this is such a small franchise and it's got such like a mm. wide spread of opinions on it already. I mean, it's like Alien and Aliens, pretty much. When you think of it like that, isn't it? There's so many people say, "Oh, Alien is better, Aliens is better," but they're very passionate about the differences, and it's like fifty fifty, like fifty fifty split basically on people who love the Evil Within one but hate the Evil Within two, and like people that love the second one. But hate the first one, and I'm kind of like in the like, I kind of hated the first one. I'm not. I really, I, I gave it a shot, but I just, I just couldn't get along with it properly. I like, I saw what it was trying to do, and I, and I got that it's trying to go far back into like survival horror roots and stuff. But I found it just a little bit too odd, and like, um, I can't think of the word opaque for the sake of being opaque. And just a bit frustrating. Mm. I, I I enjoyed the aesthetic and what it was, and uh, and the overall craziness of it. But I just found it, it was a bit too weird for its own good. I think. How about you, Neil? How did you uh, find the original? Yeah, pretty similar. I, uh, I bounced off it a few hours. I think it, you know, from Mikami's point of view, it, it brings about everything that was wrong about Resident Evil 4. And I know people say, what? What was wrong with Resident Evil 4? But yeah, there are aspects of what that did that the other games then... yeah, and <laughs> The stuff like that, the stuff that it translated badly elsewhere that then set the legacy of that series going the way it did for a while and made other horror games shit and then made everyone go, well, we don't want to do horror games anymore. And it's like, 
So he leans a bit too heavy into that and not enough into the, the theatrical, I, I suppose. I mean, I'll get to this later about, you know, how, you know, a lot of uh, survival horror from Japan sort of takes in Euro horror film as influence points. And The Evil Within 2 does that so much more, whereas The Evil Within just feels like Japanese trying to take a very, very American stab at the idea, you know, and you can sense where the culture clash kind of hits with that one because sensibilities don't work for it. And it's just hard for the sake of being hard. Yes, yeah, yeah. Not very safe. Yeah, I, uh, I feel... When it comes to difficulty in horror games, there's like, you've got to ease them into it a lot more than just making it hard from the get go. Cause I find yes. like, as soon as you die for the first time in a horror game, then it just ratchets the tension down quite a lot. You've got a, yeah. if you keep dying over and over and over and over again, the tension is just gone. And then it takes a lot longer to build that all up again. And I, and it, I didn't, I don't find, I didn't find it, I, it got back with the evil one at any point after. Like, I think the same as you, Neil. I played a few hours and I was just like, ah, oh, it's just, it's just annoying. I, 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 it's just annoying, you know. I liked what it, I liked what it was going for and I liked the, the look of it and I, I liked the designs. I liked how it was like the weirdest anime beginning ever with like the teleporting hospital and stuff. But I just, I just didn't, couldn't get along with it. And I, and I, but I appreciate what it tried to do. And I do know that people are very passionate about it for, for good reasons. It's not great when you can say, you can describe gameplay as annoying like two hours into the experience. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I was definitely, I mean, I have to be upfront in talking about the sequel and that I played about three hours of the first game and bailed off it pretty much almost instantaneously after that kind of mark. And yeah, it was, Something where, like, I could appreciate the creepy, the very bizarre creature designs. Like, I like that bizarre nature of the enemies and the variety of specifically, like, the guy that has a safe on his head that's wrapped in barbed wire that carries a massive... Like, stuff like that I really am a fan of. But when you take that bizarre weirdness and then you apply it to the narrative and then it tries to do too many things, like, there's a lot of tonal mishmashes in there where some scenes it tries to play it straight. Some of them are very bizarre, sort of, like anime logic like you said jimmy with the uh, teleporting hospital yeah but- like anime cross with new metal yeah it's it is yeah it just just tries to do too much and that's like when i reviewed the evil within 2 i was like oh because it just felt like it, it just trimmed off a lot of the silly fat but kept the silliness do you know what i mean and then it, it just, so it's just a much more cohesive just much more approachable as i think is what you'd say like without being casual which is dirty word for some i know but yeah <laughs> yeah i mean it's funny you mentioned sort of the alien to aliens thing because if you factor in ghostwire tokyo which you know was effectively the one three till late in development it there it is like that kind of trilogy where all three entries are very very different but you know you see the core of it there and yeah it's and you have fans of each you know that will defend each to the hill you know so it's yeah quite something that they've had such a change in you know that the people in charge of each game have been different as well and seems to be a curse to take hold of that series as well because people seem to leave after doing them as well yeah (laughs) yeah wasn't it uh i can't remember nakamura i can't remember her first name on the on the uh ghostwire tokyo what did you think of that by the way oh i loved it did you yeah i I mean i really did because i took it for what it was and 
that you know you were saying about how there's that anime like opening to the evil within you know ghostwire tokyo just feels like an anime show for sure yeah on a big budget level you know it, it really does just go crazy with it I, I don't know just going around tokyo is always fun yeah for me and it just it feels nice to do it's quite serene for the most part but, yeah yeah I had I had a good time with it as well. I think the worst thing that happened to it was that it came out like like uh besides Elden Ring which mm. and then you yeah. you you're comparing them in ter- in terms of open in terms of open world even if you're trying not to you're like you go you go you go back to to uh, Ghostwire Tokyo feeling like oh another thing on another thing on the map on to check take off okay. It's kind of like that uh <laughs> Girlfriend meme where it's like, okay, honey, and then oh yeah, another thing to collect. Okay, honey, <laughs> it's just so much of that, and I think in isolation, if I came back to it within in another six months, I like, might like it a lot more. But the El- yeah. the Elden Ring effect was pretty tangible. If I thought, yeah, like, I think that will get a good kick on effect when it does sure. eventually go multi platform for sure. Maybe, oh, for because, sure. Um, yeah, it, it's unfortunate. Bethesda's you know late game stuff with PS Five you know, coming when it did just made it a difficult time for any of those games to get the traction they should have because of you know supply issues and the fact that you know the fan base that you have for it are always gonna be like well if this is a microsoft thing i don't want to touch it anymore yeah and yeah you, you don't want that, but that does come into it in the end plus it was a bit of a hard sell as well for those people on x yeah it's not the kind of game that you would go out your way to buy and it's like a game for like weirdos like us but it's not for, <laughs> it's not for like the I mean, yeah, and even Evil Within fans, you know, which, yeah. again, you already have two games splitting opinion. To then go a third direction, which is why they went and said, no, we're going to do something completely different. It's exactly why people might have been put off by it. Well, it's nothing like the Evil Within, which I did see in actual reviews saying that. And it's like, well, that's why it's not called the Evil Within 3. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a very different beast. But yeah, no, I was into it. It reminded me... If the game Murdered Soul Suspect had like a big budget uh, and great production values, that that and I love that game despite it being you know, utter shit, half finished. <laughs> so it, because there's something about the whole like your oh, favorite you, child, this, <laughs> my favorite child. Yeah, you've always got your utter floor, shit. So. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that something that Jimmy said a minute ago um, that I think really rings true with especially somebody like me that didn't get on with the first game and, you know, fell in love almost instantaneously with the second game. And that is it having more of an open world, right? I think that that's a pretty drastic change mm. from the original, right? Mm. It was more about much more linear and it was much more restricted environments. So there was the tendency that it kind of felt like, well, if you didn't use stealth in the first game, then it was going to be a pretty short lifespan for uh, for Sebastian in that current run, right? And I think that what allows the sequel to be so much more approachable in part is the fact that the world opens up so much more and it gives the player more variables, both in terms of, you know, exploring environments, but also in combat, um, which I think is what makes it so much more accessible to, yeah. you know, that dirty word again, like more of a casual uh, experience early on, I think, because don't get me wrong, as we all know, this game gets incredibly difficult at uh, certain points, especially if you mess around with any of the uh, the other difficulties. Um, I guess, Jimmy, for you, like with the world opening it up, did you find that to be as, you know, welcoming as I did? Or did you find that maybe oh, it could oh. have been a little more restrained in that regard? Oh, I I went to play this game again 
and uh, after I, I reviewed it at the time when it came out, and I I don't when I buy a game, I don't typically review it because you know, as I, mm. I'm sure both of you know, it's such diminishing returns once you get away from the release date. <laughs> yeah. It's so hard. It's yeah. just like. <laughs> It's, yes, it's like Elden Ring. Hello, yeah. Oh my god, that 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 that, uh, that game has made sure it's not a lean winter for me. <laughs> out of guys and stuff on that, but uh, but I reviewed it and I felt so passionately about reviewing it, uh, even though I'd bought it myself and it was. I think it was yeah. about a week from it because it just it just started off on such a good note and then it just kept getting better from there. And like Union, I went back to it today over the last week or so, and I was like, okay, I'll just play a little bit, expecting to just refamiliarize myself a bit and mm. and uh, be like, get the neurons, get the neurons firing. But I I find myself just playing it again. Like, I've like for several yeah. evenings, I've just been into it and just like fully just stalking around Union. It does such a good job of being. Uh, an open environment that still feels like quite claustrophobic and terrifying. It just feels like mm. there's a there's a, something new around the corner every every time you turn around. There's always something to, to discover, and it does such a good job of like laying everything out and like a staggering staggering what you find. So like I I was playing it earlier and I didn't even and I found the crossbow bolt and then the crossbow could open up another safe house which is a story but then also you can go off and do side quests and all this but it it never feels like overwhelming it feels like really nicely uh like metered out and it doesn't feel mm. and it doesn't feel like it harms the tension at all like it just i feel like it enhances it in a way i really i really yeah. i feel i feel like the last of us part two seattle owes it like a lot to union I honestly do. Yeah, I, that's a good shout, actually. I think it's whether they knew it or not. I think it definitely has that kind of feeling to it, and you know, it's also why this is more in line with Ghostwire Tokyo than Evil Within One is to this, you know, because you can see the progression here and learning how to cultivate a world that seems big but isn't as big as you think, and yeah, and brings you both claustrophobia and a sense of awe at how big and unpredictable it could be so yeah it's it's really does need to get more props in that regard that its world design is top-notch and you know it takes a lot of the things that survival horror games have done to that point and subverts them both you know narratively and technically you know that so that i always find the most interesting thing about it is that it just it feels like the anti-mikami game yeah, in a yeah. lot of ways. It feels like uh, this is might this might be a bit crazy thing to say for some people, and I, I, <laughs> I have to apologise, but it feels like an evolution of Resident Evil Four, basically. Yeah, yeah it feels. And this, yeah. now this is the crazy. Absolutely. This is the crazy part. I actually prefer this game to Resident Evil Four. <laughs> I know that's. That, that, I, I that's can... maybe an insane person shout, but I really do. <laughs> wow, this this is a weird thing because I. In a way, with both these games, those games, I had the same sort of run through of reactions to it. Came to it, not really liking it for what it was at first, not really getting on with it, thinking, eh, yeah, and having the last game in my mind as well didn't help. Mm. And so I bounced off it. And it wasn't until I came back to it, I think last year or something it was, when we were talking about other things and it got enhanced on Xbox. And yeah, and it was just like, 
all of a sudden it clicked with me. I think the bit that put me off was when it went first person, ironically. I've ju- I just did I just did that and I and I just had to change my pants. <laughs> 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 it is quite scary, but it, it but it it is the f- great thing about that though is that did, have, did you play mm. when did you first play that? God, when was that? That was about just after about a month after launch because I think like I think. they saw that people some people quite like the first person and then mm. they did a really really good job of supporting it so they added a I don't know if you know but they added a whole first person mode which yeah. they didn't yeah. they didn't need to do and they've got loads of nice little stuff post launch that I didn't even know about that they've added so that's some, yes. that's some more points for them there yeah I mean that that was the thing that really struck me was that you know we were saying about the later parts of the game that can be hard but there's so many options that you can turn everything on and off without being punished. If you really want, you can play it in, with one-shot kills Yeah, for the enemies if you want to. So yeah, having that level of accessibility is brilliant. And I think that's made the game more appreciated by a lot more people. And I think that's why it's grown in its status is because it started to care and cultivate for people beyond the, the hardcore, mm-hmm. you know, and who already were like, well, this isn't like the last game that I liked, and so blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So, it, yeah, it, it's... I think it's deserving of what, it, what it's got because of that. Well, I think part of what makes it more accessible, too, from a gameplay standpoint, whether or not it's, you know, playing on casual or one of the harder difficulties is the crafting system that's new this time around, right? And the fact that, you know, you're not counting every single bullet mm. in the traditional sense, right? It still abides by that with the, you know, survival horror classic mechanics but at the same time now you the player can take their fate into their own hands a little bit right in terms of mm-hmm. that they're, they're incentivized to explore this bigger environment but also the side quests and things like that which you know it it doesn't feel like it's just extraneous kind of like checkbox stuff with those yeah. side quests mm-hmm. um, which very much like that's one of my things that i can't stand about a lot of open world games it's like cool there's all this content chances are half of it or 60 percent of it will be interesting and everything else is like filler until oh, the next th- milestone that's man. actually important oh. which you know with this being an open world game it's not too big of an environment though at the same mm-hmm. time like neil had said right it is you know generally like a medium-sized environment that your brain tells you is bigger than it actually is yes but they do such a great job of allowing each of the districts that you visit or each of the areas to like feel distinctly different just mm. enough that you don't fall into that thing that, you know, what I experienced with games like Far Cry where I'm like, oh, cool, this environment is different because there's trees here this time or there's no trees there next time or something like that, um, which I'm definitely a fan of just in terms of, you know, if you're going to be in this space and it's going to be that much bigger they at least justify it, I think, in a way other than just saying, hey, let's make this game more like the scale bigger. But yeah, then sometimes yeah. when games do that, especially sequels, right? It's kind of like, okay, did you fill that new space with things that are actually interesting or things that compel the player to chase after them? There's this weird sort of meta nature to it because, you know, it is effectively a digital place that mm. you're in. And they play with that a lot in terms of expectations of where you could go, where you might not go. And I think that is a big part of why it can feel intimidating at the beginning because you are given the illusion of you know, size and you're like, oh Christ, an open world horror game and we're having to sneak around and you remember straight away the last game, you're like, oh fuck, no, come on. No, <laughs> that, no that, that's an awful idea. But then yeah, as you get into it, you realise it's not like that. And it adds attention because it's the whole thing of getting 
yeah, open worlds don't really have that very often, or big worlds, you know, where you are trying to get from point A to point B and survive it, you know, in, in that way. And it really just ratchets up the tension in, in that regard. Yeah, and that, that keeps on going all throughout because you have these lulls where it's you get an idea of, oh, well, this is fine. I know where this leads and where that leads. But because you're in this digital space, you are then taken to places that don't make sense in, in the, the, in the world, but they are also places that are very familiar to survival horror. I mean, just to jump ahead closer to the second half of the game, you know, there's a point where you go to, a, you know, this, this area where you're thinking, this is like a stand, stock standard end of survival horror game thing you know very resident evil 4 oh look we're in a katakumi type area and it's all going to go to hell and everything's going to escalate from here and then they cut they draw back from that you know they introduce it meeting oh okay we're going to go to deeper darker like that and then they just nope now you're back here because that's the way this place works you could be here there anywhere and i love that that you just given stuff that doesn't make sense you know constantly whilst feeling structured it constantly has that idea of a video game and how anything could be next to anything if you really wanted it's you don't have to make sense of it when you think back to platformers it's like you know one level is an ice level the next one's a lava level whatever like that sewer level like they they did get a sewer level in here you gotta give that to them. yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly and yet, this is what i mean they do these things but they do them in a context that makes absolute sense for what they're doing mm. you know it's you know, there's this something drawn from every person in it and what they're creating in that digital space and making their own little dream worlds effectively. And I thought that was really cool, you know, because with that, they're able to play with the idea of what how a survival horror game post-Resident Evil 4 mm. is structured. You know, that, and that's why it's such an anti-Mikami game. Because just as you think, you go, oh, we know this, we know this is what happens. And they go, nope. Now we're going to do this. And now we've got remixes the whole thing. Mm. And yeah, it's a smart move. And something I suppose if you bounce off early on, you're not ever going to really yeah. notice and appreciate. To go back to what you were saying earlier about uh, the open world, I feel, I felt like very relieved to, to come back to this and not be some massive thing. I felt, mm-hmm. it, I'm yeah. glad that it was condensed where I actually wanted to explore everything. Like I'd go near to a house and I'd know that I couldn't go in it. I was like, Oh, that's a shame. Cause I actually want, <laughs> I wanted to explore in like every, like, Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> oh. You know what was weird? Um, sorry, before I, when I last played it, I hadn't played Alan Wake before and you know, oh. I played it twice since then. Oh, I love Alan Wake. And, oh, yeah. And, and that game was a big reason why I was like, I want to get back to playing the Evil Within 2 because it, a lot of this reminds me of playing that, so that'd be really cool. I've discovered recent. I've discovered recently that my favourite genre is like thirty-five to forty-five-year-old man over-the-shoulder action game. <laughs> <laughs> Does that have something to do with us all aging? <laughs> yeah, it's relatable. It's relatable. Speaking of aging, I was going to say as well. The reason I find this so much more playable than a lot of other like open-world games, like sandboxy games. Is that, uh, I, have you played Horizon Forbidden West? I review. Mm-hmm. I remember I was doing the first area of that. I was like, wow, okay, this is quite manageable. This is fun. I'm having a good time here, like, taking things on my list. And then it was just like, 
the curtain was pulled back and it was like, mm. oh, this is just the starting area. Look at all of this stuff that you'll never get around to doing. Look at all of this. Look out. I had that with Witcher 3 where I got through the first, you know, five hours or six hours and then the map pulls back and I was like, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to be able to accommodate those things. Yeah, I was like, yeah, I'm out of this. I'm out of this. I think I, I think I shot like one like robot rhino in anger and I was like, and I dipped. So I was like, I can't be bothered. <laughs> I'm, thir- I'm 30 years old. I feel my sands of time twinkling away. I haven't got time for this. My knees, yeah. Hurt too much. <laughs> I need to stretch them. Yeah, I think I went through that in about twenty hours. Just ignored all the side stuff. Finished the story and was like, yeah, you know, like that. Thoroughly disappointed with that game. Yeah, it's just reasons. content for this. I think one of the to go back as well to the way that the the open world is designed uh, mm. is because the quest design is much more interesting. And I find if you have the if your world is smaller. You're able to make your quest design much more interesting. And yeah. for the large yeah. by the way, the, the Witcher 3 has some great uh, little in- little stories it crams into its massive world. But for the large part, I find like the bigger the world, the worse the stories you make in it are because you're, you're so yes. unfocused. With the with Forbidden West, sorry to bully Forbidden West a bit, I really <laughs> okay. didn't. They can take it. <laughs> I really, I felt like that game has some of the worst quests. I'd ever seen in any game. I feel like <laughs> most of them were okay. You go here, you talk to the man, you kill the robot dog or like Otto or whatever it is, you yeah, robot weasel, and then you come back and then you do that fifty times in a row. And I was so tired of it. But with the Evil Within Two, you you go into a house and then there's like a like a really angry woman who makes all the time slow down somehow, and then <laughs> yeah. you go into another one. And then you find some dead, uh, some dead soldiers. And then you go somewhere else, and then you find some some slides. And then you can take the slides back, and then you go somewhere else, and you can find some keys that unlock some lockers that give you more stuff. And then you, with that stuff, you can go and do other things. And you can get more green gel, and you can come back, and you can upgrade. There's so much stuff that's so varied. It doesn't feel like you're doing the same yeah. thing over and over again. Yeah, and it contextualizes it. Yeah, it makes right. yeah. yeah. Despite it all being different, it all fits because of yeah. the overall theme and the overall plot you know that you can have of oh well you know we're in a digital space we can do what the fuck we want and yeah without, digital space without going in the to mind. the point where it's like yeah without going to the point where it's like uh, yeah we're just going to do anything and everything they are just doing what fits the story and the people in it and yeah it's quite restrained, really, in that regard, but also... I, yeah, I can't believe how restrained it is, you know, yeah. revisiting mm. it. Like, again, thinking about the idea that, you know, okay, thinking about the different directions that the original game went in, right? And it mm. almost is, it's very erratic, almost. Like, they have all these mm. ideas and they just want to get them down. And then it ends up being very convoluted, I found. Yeah. yeah. And with this, again... Too like, many cooks. Too many cooks too throwing many cooks, weird right? spaghetti and stuff in the same yeah. weird pot <laughs> filled with, like, octopus water. It was weird. Yeah, and someone's pissed in the bolognese. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, they're pissed in the bolognese. <laughs> but I think that you know the fact that this game is able to not only drastically increase the size compared to the original, but it also has the restraint to you know take all that weirdness. It still has essentially mm. the same amount of you know wacky and weird ideas, but it feels so much more just like okay, calm down. We'll get to this later into the back half of the game, which I think is probably why the pacing works so well for me is that, you know, it introduces this weird world. Anything can happen, which like Neil said, it 
gives a certain level of tension to an open world experience that you typically like outside of this game, I struggle to think of any others that can do that because it ties to that narrative idea of anything can happen. It's an unstable place. And just the idea though, that you can fill a world with that, that's ever evolving, but still get to those weird ideas that, you know, influence the greater story for, you know, fans of the original while not alienating people. That's the other thing is that like Uh diving into the sequel, I feel like you're caught up within the first 10 minutes of the game. And, it doesn't give us this history lesson about STEM and, you know, the company behind it and all this stuff. It kind of just is very like quick in getting us there, reminding us like this is what you get the dream sequence of, you know, Sebastian seeing his daughter die in that house fire and then kind of like snap to with, okay, here's the plot of the sequel. You're going to get right back to Union. or Such, go to Union. such a good tra- transition. Sorry to cut in. It's yeah. such a great no, opening because yeah. it goes like seamlessly from a catch up and a recap and the context of where you are now. Oh, as a hospital. It was a bad hospital. You're an alcoholic now. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently he can drink four bottles of whiskey in one sitting. That's his superpower. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to finish one in this one, but still. <laughs> <laughs> and then seamlessly without like taking a breath, you're playing the game. It's such a good transition. I, I know. I think it's, as well, a lot of people I've seen recently some people criticizing the way the game looks, and I can't quite believe what? that as well. I know, <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, that's, that ever that, be I, I can't this game. quite believe that. I was like, I was like, it's like, like, like punching by keyboard, like, how dare you? It's one of the <laughs> most beautiful games ever made. You don't understand McCarthy's vision, like that kind of like annoyance because it's just, oh no, wow, that's that, that's. Bizarre. Yeah, it's Especially crazy. That they... FPS boost on uh, Series S and X, like yeah. it looks fantastic. I couldn't believe how good it looked. I, I, I agree. You know, if you're going into nitty gritty of it, and yeah, of course there are people, the people that like Horizon Forbidden West, for instance, will mm. probably say that sort of thing. But not to generalize, but you know, <laughs> to say, <laughs> but yeah, you know, there are aspects of like the the facial animation on certain yeah. characters looked a bit off. Because I feel like they were no more than I, anything else. Yeah, because I feel like yeah. they were. Let's be real. I think they were trying. They didn't get a whole load of budget with this. I think because mm. nobody really expected the second game to be made. I don't think because no. I think it was such a surprise because because the first game was such marmite and I don't think it sold very well. Yeah, if and I you no longer had the Mikami weight behind it. Yeah, so you couldn't finance it based on. Yeah, you, know, you couldn't tell you know, people putting money into this to say, oh yeah, we've got Shinji Mikami, you know, the guy who made Devil May Cry and Resident Evil. Mm. Yeah. He took a, like, took a you... back seat, didn't he? he was... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so suddenly it's like, well, no, he's involved, but he's not. Yeah. yeah it's very much like executive producer sort of thing. Yeah. And so, yeah, that, that's always going to be a hard selling point. And, but, you know, first, to, you know, to the credit, do this a lot. They let stuff get made, you know, anyway. And yeah, the budget may not be as much, but I think it helps a lot of their companies make the games they mm. want to make, mm. you know, with, within confines without being given like carte blanche to do you know, yeah. this big ambitious swing because that can go really wrong. I mean, you think of it, even this generation, the two big Bethesda games that have come out in Deathloop and Go to White Tokyo, they're stuff that any other big company would just not bother with mm. so like this doesn't this doesn't fit a checklist for one way or another it's not a license it doesn't have this doesn't have that we can't charge people out the ass for it they are and i think that annoys a fan base that you know generally commits to a lot of the stuff that is modern gaming and so yeah bethesda doing what they do that was great mm. 
and my only fear there of course is that that is it now because yeah. you know now they are under part of that part of the world of gaming that is well you know if it makes money we're okay you know what then and we'll make it make money but yeah uh, it makes me worry a bit if they had had that bigger budget like who's to say they wouldn't have you know, made themselves a pair of shoes that they couldn't fit into, right? In terms of the world yeah. and all the scope of that, right? So mm. maybe that is what really allowed them, or I suppose it forced them to be like, okay, let's be realistic. We want to go bigger, but not so bigger that they lose that texture of that specific brand mm. of horror yes. that was so prevalent yeah. in the original. And, you know, generally, I think that was probably one of the high points of the original game for the three of us, right? Generally speaking, over those experiences, for me, that's the only thing that really was a standout, you know, for, we're not going to rehash again, just the, uh, our experiences with the original, but I think that taking what was present in the original, what seemed to be, you know, that Shinji influence, right. And then continuing that in more specifically, like the more notable boss monsters, I think in the sequel, right. That's really where it comes through. Gets a little lost when you're dealing with an open world that has to be populated by, you know, the, the shamblers, we'll call them for Mm. a, uh, a lack of a better title, but the, I think nom- that the nombies, the not zombies, the nombies, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start using that from now on. Um, it's just but, like every zombie thing ever these days. Can't call them zombies. They have to be like shufflers, walk lords, right. or bitey boys. <laughs> <laughs> what do they call the- them in the Resident Evil series, Neil? Zeros. Zeroes. Yeah. Zeroes. Like, Thank you, you fucking, you, you deserve to be able to say zombies in that series. Come oh, on. No, I've opened like, a can of worms. <laughs> then, 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 like, of like, of like the 10 different Walking Dead shows, they all call them different things. Like, what is yeah. it? What, what, and they're all so surprised. It's always it's like, like, oh, you call them this, we call them that. It's like, oh, how weird that we all call it different things. You all so. call them Gregs, we call them Jabomblies. <laughs> <laughs> you know up north we call them baps and you call them buns <laughs> some bloody hungry baps these always biting away I think before we get into more of you know Shinji Mikami's influence from the first game seeing how much of that carries over um, and mm. some of the more varied monster designs in the uh, sequel and whatnot, uh, we'll take a quick break and uh, when we come back we'll dive right into that And we're back from our break. And, you know, we finished by talking about Shinji Mikami and how obviously was the director of the original game, but then in the sequel was regulated to just an executive producer, supervisor role, was not the director. um, And John Johannes actually stepped in to direct this time around. And, you know, I would say based on my limited time with the original game, there's definitely a shift in the approaches to horror, you know or the style of horror, I think, in the sequel more so than in the original. You know, it seems to be a little bit more of a psychological aspect to it. Not to say that was not a factor in the original, but I think that, you know, capturing Sebastian's sort of mindset and sort of him dealing with that trauma, and not only from Beacon, but also, of course, losing his daughter, his wife leaves him, and these things that becomes a little more prevalent in the world itself, I think, more so than in the original. Um, Jimmy, for you, like, how did you feel about Johannes's approach to horror in uh, Evil Within 2? I think he did a really good job of it. I think what the best thing he did for the game was to really ground it in a very basic thing, which is, like, family. And the it's, it's very, obviously, been done a lot. But I found you care a lot more, and then you're a lot more invested in Sebastian, whereas, like, in the last game, he was just 
some guy with a really cool coat. <laughs> you know? and, the, and one of the best last names of any cop ever. Yeah, Castellanos. Oh my god, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's uh, the way it grounds it a lot more and you care a lot more and then you're more invested in the things that happen to him and I find him a lot more personable in this one. Like, even though I feel like his voice actor is a bit up and down here, like I feel like I, I've, I've always felt like he ever did a bit too much or a bit too little. You know, I always feel like he seems like he's seen Max Payne games and he's thought, <laughs> I don't want to sound like I'm being Max Payne. Yeah. But everything about this character is Max Payne. So yeah, with a nice fringe. <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to apologetically sort of do it occasionally and then remember that I shouldn't really do it and then feel ashamed. And yeah, that's sort of where the, it goes down a bit. Yeah. And as somebody yeah. that's replaying Max Payne 3 as of this weekend, nobody can ever touch James McCaffrey's uh, no. <laughs> Max Payne. So the, no. the idea that you would try to channel that seems like a fool's errand. But um, yeah, you know, I think what I really was impressed with, and Jimmy touched on it, right? The idea that. It's a lot more grounded, even though, of course, the game evolves into something that is equally wild, if not more so than some of the elements of the original. But in grounding it in something as simplistic as family, right, it gives you an easy jumping off point. Again, we keep talking about accessibility, making this something that is more difficult for people to bounce off of, I think, than the original game, Um, not only from gameplay and story perspective, but more so, I think, like in the environments themselves also. Like, that's something that we've kind of touched upon a little bit, right? The idea that you can have the environment be evolving, right? Almost evolving, like, the player's Mm -hmm. understanding of the trauma that Sebastian's dealing with and, you know, the various people that work within that organization that, you know, have made union possible. Um, I think that that's something that really did fuel that idea that, like, you never know what's coming. And that's an element that is just, I mean, it holds up so well, even on a replay for me. I think also as well that you always feel like even when you're traveling through the same streets again, you don't feel safe even though you've already dealt with everything there or so you think. I was playing earlier and I was just walking along thinking I had like a simple like trek back and then I was like, oh, why is there suddenly an eye symbol above me? (laughs) 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 And then next thing I know, one of them weird like the thing dogs with like the six heads like four like, like dicks comes after me. I'm like, ah! out of a shed from nowhere. So I think it it always feels like it feels, I don't know how much is dynamic, but it always feels dynamic. Do you know what I mean? So you always, you never feel like you just, whenever you leave the safe house, you're always going into the same union. So like, uh, like the people, they always seem like they're moving. Once you kill, once you kill the dominoes on the board, the dominoes come back somewhere else. It feels like, but even those little changes, I think, whether they be environmental, whether they be, you know, new enemies in an area, it's a good balance of both of those things, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, again, when you're looking at the first half and the second half of the game, the environments drastically change. I think the second half of the game, I would say, probably resembles more what I had experienced in the beginning of uh, yeah. The Evil Within, the original. But, you know, again, it kind of has a lot more conciseness surrounding it or the implementation of it, right? Whether it be story or the environments themselves or coming back to the fact that just, you know, making noise and being alert or alerting the enemies Mm. is not a game over, right? Which, you know, depending on the difficulty you were playing of the original, it more or less like it was pretty difficult to kind of like recoup after that once you had alerted people. Um, But I think that when you're talking about that open world and stopping that from feeling too stale or stagnant after a handful of hours. Like the things that you mentioned, Jimmy, are exactly what 
you want from an open world game. Just something a little different, whether mm-hmm. it be fundamental to the way you traverse, whether it be a new, you know, a threat that you have to contend with, like changing the environment just a little bit, whether or not it drastically alters your play style. Like, I think that that, again, like if you go too big, then the deep resources are going to be deviated elsewhere to not mm. have those implementations. And, you know, when you're running around that main area of union early on, like that's a good handful of hours, I'm pretty sure, where you're in that environment. But even on the most recent replay this week, I never approach it like, oh, yeah, this is the same city block and these are the same five enemies. Or, you know, again, they just are able to have this environment that's larger not lose its identity at any real turn uh, in the town of Union. I also feel like the crafting, to go back to the crafting, mm. I completely yeah. forgot to say this earlier. <laughs> it's just like, slip, there's so much to talk about this game. It's such. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I, I sat down and was like, oh, am I going to have enough to say? But now that I'm sat here, I just realised how much I enjoy talking about The Evil Within 2. And I think we all need to talk more about The Evil Within 2. But <laughs> the crafting is, it's really good. I feel, I feel like crafting in a way, if you make, give, someone access to app like in the old resident evil games you know you had for like like a crawl around pixels like behind a curtain for like half a half of half a shotgun shell or something but (laughs) but here it lets you craft but it doesn't feel like it makes it easy at all it's still i still i still felt like every the tension from just aiming your weapon was just quite palpable and it really uh ratcheted it up for me like i feel like i should have maybe turned the difficulty up because i feel that's where really the tension would come yeah especially in combat but anyway, you know you can you feel the weight of every stuff. shot yeah yeah you feel the weight of every shot you feel like every ammo every bullet counts and the way it does it with the crafting is really smart so if you in, 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 if you really drastically need one you can craft that last ditch shell but it will cost more and then that means you'll have to go around and scramble for more stuff but you can also go to a workbench and craft that way. And that's another really clever little thing, that subtle little bit of game design that like really ratchets up the tension in some ways. Improvements upon the established system. Yeah. It's always the best things about the Evil Within 2. It's just those little things that it does that go, you know, I get why they did this in the past, but we don't need to do this anymore. And we also don't need to do it exactly like everyone else does it. Mm-hmm. So let's do it in a way that fits our system and it does again. It just really does fit the system. And going back to like the open world thing again, um, one thing I also was really intrigued by with this current playthrough that I, I picked up on more was that yeah, you know, as certain people vie for power in the world, their influence on how it looks determines about what you see. You know, and in terms of you know, you have that whole you know, camera in the sky for a long time. You have there are certain environments that you only see because of certain characters. And I like that about it. That, you know, again, going into this idea that everyone going into this digital world is effectively a game designer and making their own little corner where I've made this, this is my corner and I can influence this much. And when someone is like offed, you know, that, that gives someone else more power, more room to create the things they want in that environment. And yeah, it's it's like um, yeah, it's like a shared like MMO maybe sort of universe if you will, where everyone can do what the fuck they want. 
and it can encroach on other people's stuff and yeah you could boot someone out and then take over their space by putting your shit in mm, or scream uh, Leroy Jenkins and fuck off on your own yeah yeah <laughs> this is it. it this is it and again this goes back to this idea of it being a very meta take on design you know where everyone's trying to have a piece of the pie so to speak and try to exert their influence on this project which I don't know I'm not sure if it was ever the case but given Mikami took that step back and let other people go in on it it feels like a thing where everyone's sort of racing to be noticed and be the one that puts their biggest stamp on what the game does and from a narrative perspective and from you know a design perspective it's there you know for everyone to see it's a story about fighting for power and protecting what was you know in Lily you know and Lily basically represents Mikami in that regard I find that she is you know the original idea the original story and we must protect her and then there are all these other forces going no we want to do it this way will you want to do it this way we believe it should be this and in the end almost an acceptance of what it should be and saying we can still be this we can still be this kind of game we can still be a survival horror game and do it differently we can respect the culture of what came before and build on it and i like that as a a way to think about the game yeah i'm going to make a kind of a wild comparison that is not going to seem like it's going somewhere but i trust trust me it is like i compare the approach to a more open world in this to Metro Exodus, where you have Mm. these massive open environments, but then what segues you between those is typically like a much more linear, smaller scale environment um, that I think is really great at keeping that connectivity tissue and never letting the story necessarily like get away or be lost within the context of that open world, right? Because, you know, again, speaking about the larger the scale gets, the focus is going to be drawn away from maybe the narrative potential or just you lose the thread a bit. And in this, I think that, you know, especially early on when they're introducing the main, the early main antagonist, uh, Stefano Valentini. My boy. uh, Yeah. Who, you know. You're a horror. (laughs) Yeah. I will say it's incredibly disappointing that, you know, spoiler, people should be expecting spoilers, um, that <laughs> that villain is basically dispatched halfway through the game. It's the Vars I think problem, that- isn't it? It's the Vars problem with him. That's the, that's one of the only blemishes. Sorry to cut no, in no, there, but... No, no, no you're right. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. It's, he is the Vars of this, and yeah. how you react to any villain beyond that is there. You know, it is a big problem. Mm-hmm. I always say that Vars, despite what he was, you know, you do get better villains in that game after Vars, if you think of it in a more, you know, a less showy version. Yeah, you know, but he's got such razzle-dazzle, though, doesn't he? Yes, it's, that's it's it. Impossible it goes from razzle-dazzle to... It's like having Robert Downey Jr. and then going to Daniel Day-Lewis for a bit, for, like, a little bit, you know? It's like, not everyone's going to appreciate it, but I think there's more to a smaller role that comes after it. And I think it's kind of the same here. As much as Stefano is such a big thing and he's very over the top and extravagant, I like the way it sort of takes this power struggle that goes on afterwards and the people involved in that. I think, though, that what I like most about his character, you know, other than introducing those awesome moments that are kind of like these stasis fields, right? When he kills somebody, he has this camera that puts Mm. them in a field that basically just has their death playing on a loop, right? And I mean, that in and of itself not only looks cool but 
it's so much more interesting than him just being a serial killer obsessed with photography, right? It kind of yes. plays into the idea of STEM. Anything can happen when, and you can't really expect what's going to come next. But I like more so that his personality comes through not only in, you know, engaging him in combat or seeing him kill other people, but it shows in the environments themselves for that mm. early portion of the game, right? You go through those like art installations of death, essentially, that are these either it's bodies or it's mannequins that are in these insane poses and these things. But I like that you essentially are walking through like the most twisted art exhibit you've ever been in. Like Wesker does Banksy basically, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's a great way to put it. I love that. But I think that that just makes that villain that much more interesting. And, you know, of course is over the top and, you know, fits within the melodrama of a lot of this game, but more so like, it being reminiscent of something other than that and showing in the environments that you're walking through, like especially early on when you're going through, there's these like long red curtains that kind of are always moving, even though you're indoors and there's no obviously air and stuff like that. It's very dreamlike, uh, you know, uh, to uh, invoke the phrase, like very Lynchian almost in the pre- yeah, presentation say, of some of those worlds. I, I think that was very deliberately uh, Twin Peaks as well as with the coffees. Well, I've never... Funny thing is, I've never even watched Twin Peaks. I'm sure. Don't throw the rocks. Don't throw the rocks. I haven't either, but it's prevalent enough, right? What it was yeah, going yeah. for. That. For sure, with the coffee as well, and he, he's he's had such a big influence on like uh, Japanese, uh, like horror, like alternative creators, like um, as well the creator of well, Deadly, yeah, I think Deadly Premonition. I can't. Is it Suda Fifty One Deadly Premonition? It's swearing, swearing, isn't it? swearing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was just going to say, it's like, you know, I brought up Euro horror being a big thing. And I think the other thing that influences this is very Argento. You know, he has been a big influence on survival horror in over the years. But also Canadian directors, especially, is another thing. You know, Cronenberg is another one that comes to mind when you think of the Evil Within, I think. Oh, especially for sure, this one. for sure, yeah. A lot of body horror. Yeah. And so those two things, yeah, I think one of those early se- sequences with that guy who's basically just stuffing his mouth with that white shit, you know, that it's things like, it just feels like the best parts when it ignores American horror, you know, and tries to go for its own, you know, those areas, you know, and doing Japanese, European, uh, and, you know, Canadian horror is very distinct when you think of people like Cronenberg, especially. So yeah. It, I like that about it. And Lynch sort of, you know, he is very unlike anything else. Yeah. You know, so it makes perfect sense that he's always going to be an influence on this. And the direction of the story is obviously very, I, I feel it feels, yeah, if it wasn't the evil within two, yeah. And say Konami made, you know, made this, you would say, Oh, this could be a new Silent Hill. This could be a reimagining of Silent Hill quite easily. You know, it's got a lot of the same themes, you know, guilt, you know, manifestation of guilt and things like that. So, yeah, it, it could work, you know, a lot better than some of the games did. So, yeah, I, I like that about it. it. It understands its reference points, takes bits from them, and then, you know, pulls and pushes at them to play out in a way that no other game would because it understands where it's coming from because they have that heritage there. And I think where Mikami's influence is best felt is wherever he's sort of lent in and said, well, you know, I know this, I know this, I know that. And other people have taken that on rather than him doing it. You know, it's like 
the idea of you being too close to something to really do something new with it. But other people who are listening to you and taking in what you're saying can learn from that and take it somewhere else. You know, I think the script is, um, you know, a Japanese American script as well. You know, you know, in terms of the two writers are Japanese and American. So again, you are having this clash of influence sort of, sort of coming in to and appreciation, I'd imagine, between them and collaborating to make something different and new and exciting. And I like that about it. It really does feel like this sort of multicultural approach to it that while the evil within itself was doing a bit of that, it felt like it was leaning too much to try and be an American horror without having enough of the influence in there, you know, and having too much of the Japanese in the American to make it work. It's funny, it's funny you say that as well, because that was what, what they did with the original Resident Evil, isn't it? They had, yeah. had absolutely no idea about American culture. They were just like, oh, yeah. maybe this is it. And then had people talking about sandwiches and unlocking and stuff. Yeah. I mean, you ever see stuff like Evil Dead Trap, you know, like mm-hmm. a Japanese horror like that? And that sort of stuff always reminds me of what Resident Evil was, you know, where it has this sort of weird, what the fuck is this? thing you know vibe to it but also feels very familiar and slightly american like someone else's idea of america which is great because when it comes from a place that has its own ideas great it will work you know you're not entirely just trying to be american it's just you want to take those influences and make them go places why kojima's worked so well over the years because he understands that it's like he loves the culture of you know american culture he loves british culture and he fuses that with what he knows from his own country and his own experiences, and he mixes it all up in the right way. You know, it's not for everyone, but he gets it, and he creates something unique. Speaking of Kojima, I really hope uh, The Evil Within 2 gets, like, the Metal Gear Solid 2 re-examination sometime soon, where you look at it and go, yes. go damn, this was really ahead of its time. Because I'm seeing this game a lot in a lot of more recent games. I feel like it's such an, Absolutely. It's such an interesting, like... Um, I was not quite parasitic, but quite give and take relationship between this and Resident Evil. I found a lot mm. of this in Village. I found that now that I yeah, in very much the same way that Seb was, you know, jumped on the PT thing straight away. You know, it, it is Resident Evil's recent success. Symbiotic, very, symbiotic. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, that's, yeah, that's it. it. It relies very much upon the idea. Oh, well, they're doing this. We'll take a gamble. People like this, and there's a market window open for what's been done. And it's great. And I think they were more confident to try that with Village, where they were like, well, now that people like us again, you know, culturally, critically, and commercially. Now that people together, like us again, let's go really weird again. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And But people still will love it. And that's the great thing. You can yeah. get away with it at that point. And they did. So they took something like Evil Within 2 as mm. an influence point, And they really did. Yeah. Because, you know, the more open world that is... Again, it seems bigger than it is, but it's very much just like, it's a hub, here's yeah. a bunch of levels sort of thing. And it, it works. It works perfectly. Right. And yeah, I like that. It should all feed into one another, you know, in the same way that, you know, Tomb Raider to Uncharted to Tomb Raider is a thing. You know, you want that. Mm-hmm. You want games that, I mean, we, you know, just before we recorded this, you know, we learned of the new Alone in the Dark game, which again is going to take influence from a lot of the modernization of old horror franchises, 
Resident Evil 2 but, remake in particular looks very yeah, much Yeah, and like then, you know, it's that, got... Yeah. Yeah, and it's got people who've worked yeah. on frictional game stuff, you know, and dealing with mental health stuff. That would be very interesting for me in how that will work. With Michael Hedberg, isn't it? Yeah, Michael yeah, Hedberg, yeah, he's Michael doing Hedberg. that. So, yeah, he did Soma, yeah, he wrote for Soma, uh, Amnesia, Dark Descent. So I would really, really be intrigued to see how that goes. And I know when I was there for the showcase before, embargo that they were talking about the score and this doom jazz score which again very twin peaks inspired yeah um, i was like i heard it i heard doom jazz when i got i uh, we also went to it called vultures the, yeah and i remember seeing doom jazz i was like okay tell me more <laughs> what's doom jazz the coolest sounding john music i know ever. yeah and i was like i heard it i was like Shit, no, I like this stuff. I, I do. And it's like, straight away, I don't have to hear more. And it's like... So I love Doom, and I quite enjoy yeah. jazz. <laughs> Pull those here. <laughs> yeah, basically, if you want to know about Doom jazz in general, the soundtrack for Twin Peaks that was originally done was the inspiration for pretty much all of Doom jazz as a genre. So if you like that, that's great. On the topic of music, though, the Evil Vin Evil 2 has some beautiful, beautiful music, as well as using the classic... Uh, Classic music. I think uh, I can't quite fleur de lis. Is that the refrain they always go to yeah. in the mirror? Is that what it's called? It used, I think it is. Yeah, I think so. I think it is. And then just the general music is excellent, and the, the especially the alert alert sound when you're found. Yes, and they go to go with the the roar of the zombies. It's you ha you're suddenly like uh, fiddling very very like. Um, worriedly with your L2 and R2 to try and get your gun up and yes brilliant you know I describe them as being sort of like mindless not that memorable enemies but when they see you yeah. like, they do and the this, job the of way they sway as well the, they're the great design yeah great design on the sway so they're unpredictable yeah, even if you're like me who needs like several minutes and like a nap and like a coffee to <laughs> to use thumbsticks to aim <laughs> or like do the like I have to do the uh cross my heart every time do like the uh <laughs> it's so hard you're talking about the uh you know the symbiose between these different survival horror games like resident mm -hmm. evil 2 the remake right i think that was a big thing right was that they had to do that sway initially that kind of catches you off guard no matter how long in or how far into the game you are and that's one of those things that you know it it's disappointing that a game like evil within two really does seem to find its audience or get the, you know, it, it's not like it came out to poor reviews or anything, but just generally speaking, you would think that it would be a much more notable release upon, you know, when it came out originally and the fandom behind it, other than probably a lot of what was going on at the time, which was like noise from fans. This is too different. I don't think the perception around Bethesda at the time helped either. It was a very, no. very strange time because Ooh, yeah. if I remember correctly, <laughs> yeah. it's 2017. But yeah. Bethesda were putting out like some really good games, like one after very. the other that didn't work at all, like commercially. It's, I, I think that's such a shame. They had Prey, they had Dishonored 2 or Dishonored 2 and then Jesus yeah. yeah and they neither of those did too well and then Wolfenstein New Colossus which didn't do too well either and so I think uh, at the end of the year they went oh we love single player games and then they released Fallout 76 straight away after. <laughs> so they were like okay we don't love them that much yeah I mean you're not wrong in that year it was <laughs> Evil Within 2 Dishonored and Prey yeah. I mean fucking hell if any other studio had a year like that yeah uh, I mean that to me, that that is three games that are just 
magnificent. Mm, chef's kiss, I mean, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, and you know, I'm going to say on record that, you know, the Evil Within 2 compared to those two is nothing, only because those two games are fucking amazing to me. And, but it's still a really good game. Yeah. It's like, and I get exactly why people would think it is. I think I'd probably edge it over Prey. I think I'd go Dishonored 2. Well, yeah, I just did it. It's yeah. sci-fi. I, I did it. It's yeah, yeah. The sci-fi horror thing for me. It, it, that's what does it, I think. But, um, and Arcane, you know, I would buy their, I would buy their dandruff to be <laughs> fair. Well, I think they <laughs> need you to, poor guy. They don't <laughs> sell anything, apparently, poor guys. It's yeah. so strange as well. They, their, their immersive sims are so popular and so beloved, yet they don't sell that amazingly. Mm. It's odd because uh, I don't think Deathloop did that well. I don't think like the marketing. Well, again, where, I think that was shortages yeah, where, in general. Yeah, well, the, the marketing was a bit overzealous. Like you'd wake up in the morning and be like, "Honey, new new Deathloop trailer drops," and then lunchtime, "Honey, new Deathloop trailer dropped." <laughs> It'd be like all over the place. And, yet, and the mad thing about that was, it didn't show enough. Uh, despite all the trailers they had, it was never enough. Yeah, it didn't show the good bits about it either. It didn't, yeah. show, it didn't show what was unique or special about it. And yeah, then, but that's the same for any arcane game, I find. It's like, you can't do that. And it is, it's difficult. And I think it's Bethesda in general. That is a ghost Ghostwire as well. Ghostwire as well. He didn't really put it across. I think yeah. the worst thing they probably did that for that game, which is... A strange thing to say, even though we always clamour for gameplay first and foremost, is to show the gameplay off in a very specific way. They showed it off on the kind of quite marmite combat, which mm. I could I could honestly I wanted it to be a little bit nippier, a little bit faster, but and it does get a little bit quicker as it goes on, but from the uh, gameplay it looks a little bit repetitive. But what they didn't do was show all the other stuff in Tokyo you could do and all of that. They didn't do... I, I, the problem is, and I think this is a general Bethesda problem, is a lot of what those games do well, you can't really show. Yeah. You have to... You need to sit. Tell. You need to sit you and exist. Be, it's the well, VR problem, isn't it? Yeah. It's like you have to be there, sit there and play it yourself to get it and to really understand it. It's why games like Dishonored 2 you know, and like The Evil Within 2 get that constantly where like people come to it and go, Oh, I didn't know I would have liked this. You know, I, I, it took me playing it to get it. And, you know, again, this is another one of those game pass things where you can say, Oh, well, you know, game pass can, I think has benefited the evil within two in terms of like, it's, uh, getting more of an audience because, you know, not only was it there, but it also got the upgrade to make it, you know, smoother, faster, better. See, I actually and played it on PS5 it and I think it, I don't think they, did anything to it on PS5? I, no, I mean, it I has like it, the natural kicker. Yeah, but I think the technology on PS5 actually hinders it a little bit when I was playing. I was coming across quite a lot of glitches and stuff. So I feel, so I feel like, uh, yeah, like Nick, uh, Sebastian's head would like spin around and he'd do like the, he'd, he'd do a book yeah. of tea I mean, quite often. That's just a byproduct yeah. of STEM. <laughs> I think, again, that's just that weird Bethesda Sony relationship that's yeah. never quite been there. Ironically, most, uh, <laughs> the best part of that relationship came at the end. <laughs> you know, they had Deathloop and Ghostwire. But, it, yeah, it, it is what it is. You can't yeah. do anything They've got new that. dads now. That was yeah, that's it. Yeah. I, I'm very interested in the future of Arcane and Bethesda. I feel like you could uh, have a good long discussion just about that because Game Pass is... The way the way games are made, does a game like The Evil Within 2 get made within Game yeah, Pass? Yeah, I mean, we look at 
I mean, the alarm bells do ring when you see Redfall being yeah. you know, his co-op experience. But then everything that's come out since about, you know, you don't have to play it with other people. Yeah. It's designed to be whatever. That makes me feel so much better. Because sure, I was sure. like, oh, okay, so it doesn't matter. But yeah, I mean, we've had that discussion on this podcast before about Game Pass and how it can benefit in the horror genre, especially. You know, but yeah, it, it has its downsides and... They will come in time, I think. Uh, just we won't we won't see them till like each studio has put out a game each, mm-hmm. I think, and, yeah. and then we'll then we'll know, then we'll know depending on the re- reception that is. Jay, you can talk now. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about football again. Thing where you know it's un. I guess I'm of two minds of it. Right? It's the idea that. Evil Within 2 has the benefit of being a sequel in that you have the fan base that's going to show up for a game like this, right? Because off of wanting to see a continuation of that, whether or not the fan base of the original is going to be open to the evolutions that the sequel makes, you know, that, you know, we clearly have seen the divide between these two. But, you know, I think that it's been nice to at least see this game receive the essentially like the resurgence or a second look and getting a lot of credit for what it does and the swings that it takes in my mind it really is the ideal type of sequel in that it takes certain swings that you know is going to upset certain members of the fandom but overall it makes for an experience that is more accessible again you keep coming back to that it's a game that i went into originally and was like there's no way i'm going to enjoy this based off of my three hours with the original one and yet it it's it takes the ideas from that and it's just so much more again relaxed it's like okay we're going to get to yeah. all the weird shit it's going to be as weird and bombastic at times as the original but they don't you know have that all in the forefront right away it's not so no. overwhelming and you know again to like jimmy's point the idea that they're going to ground it in something that is very familiar to any work of fiction no matter the medium right it's about family it's about grappling with the past and these things and yet the changes that they make are a majority of the time, like the things that we've been talking about are not like revolutionary for survival horror games, but they are quality of life improvements yes. that, you know, I, th- I believe that this is a shorter experience than the original game. You know, the, I'm thinking about the main yeah, quest probably stuff. Yeah, probably die about 50 primarily, times. Primarily, <laughs> not, the si- not all the side quest stuff. Um, but I think that, you know, overall, it's a richer experience in what it's able to do in just the main story, not even getting into the side stuff, which again, kind of just enriches not only the gameplay experience, but also the war, right? I think that we keep talking about adding features or rather the game itself serves as an example of you can add more features and it doesn't lose the focus that so many other games do when they try to, you know, just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then what made the original great in the eyes of some is essentially non-existent. Whereas for me, this was the opposite. This was a game that, if anything, it got better the Mm. bigger it got in the fact that that scope and scale allows a lot more breathing room, I think, between the more, you know, zanier, brainy ideas that this wants to go. Like, it's not going full anime over the top right out of the gate. It really does kind of pamper the audience through that. And then, you know, by the end of it, when you're invested and it's like, well, I'm not going to turn back now, then, you know, the reality starts to break and you get those wild environments and you get even the more wild, uh, you know, boss moments throughout. And everything gets drenched in mayo. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It goes back to this idea though, doesn't it? That, yeah. If you want to generalize somewhat, the difference between 
absurdism in American horror and in Japanese horror is very different. There's a, a matter-of-factness to many Japanese horror films that use that to, to, compared to American films that, that makes it work better because it doesn't treat it like... It, it doesn't put it on stage and put the fireworks behind it. It basically says, eh, it's part of the plot, it's part of the thing. We're not, we're not going to make a big deal of it. It's there. You know, it's like, it doesn't matter that you could have been chased by a fucking camera on legs. You know, it's like, it, it, it makes sense in the context of what we're doing. It doesn't feel like a bunch of people sat in an office and said, you know what would make this really good? If we made it wacky, you know, and yeah, zany yeah. and like that. And, you know, sorry, I know we're ragging on America here a lot, but it's like, I, can't, I can't stand them. I can't, I st- I can't stand I talking to them. I can't stand podcasting with them. <laughs> but yeah, it, it does that. Jimmy asked me if the heat was the reason why Americans are so crazy. <laughs> yeah, probably. I mean, it's probably why we're getting very deranged here today. Yeah. So, so, yeah. It all, it all yeah, makes it, sense it, now. Yeah, but it is there. It is there. That the, the Japanese are very good at that in all of their. That's why Japan- that Japanese horror it. movies don't. Japanese horror remakes don't tend to work so well because you can't just. Yes. You can't really take what makes like uh, the the Ring or like the Grudge work and then just put. Yeah. Like, I just put Buffy the Vampire Slayer in it. You know. <laughs> yeah, it, be- it becomes a very different thing. Like, my f- most favorite case of that is. The film Dark Water, which yeah, Jennifer Connelly it, it, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. you know the original version of yeah. that. Uh, but while they both kind of share a lot of the same DNA, and they are a family-based drama that happens to have horror tendencies, the American version doesn't give a shit about the horror really, and so it just becomes a drama where you've probably seen many of the same sort of thing in the years since, where it's like. Oh, it's all in their mind, but it's not really horror. You know, what twats would call elevated horror. Yeah. Is there, it's, it's that, but it doesn't want to be. It's not pretending to be anything other than what it is. It has a horror element. You know, I think of the, the film Pulse, for instance, like that. You know, films that mm. do horror <laughs> that really understand that it doesn't have to be outwardly obvious that you're doing horror and it doesn't have to sort of lean on the crutch of doing a different genre to make it and to sort of pepper it with the horror stuff. It can be both. But have you considered that every film is better when you add Jennifer Connelly? Well, I mean, that, have you, have you I considered mean, that? It would have been I, a I, disaster. Very good. Top Gun. Yeah, it would her have been being a disaster. In, her, her being in Top Gun Maverick was quite distracting from the fact that Tom Cruise was held together with staples. I was like, I, every time I looked and I saw like the skin peeling off, I was like, oh, Jennifer Connelly. <laughs> oh yeah, Tom Cruise is very quickly becoming like the Joker in the New Fifty Two run, <laughs> the skin mask. Yeah, Homer Simpson <laughs> with all the yeah, the wads of, all the wads of uh, elastic bands behind his back, wherever it is. It. <laughs> I want to take it back for a moment to what we've been kind of talking about the throughout. Yeah, with yeah. This, sorry, this game, <laughs> Jennifer Connelly. I with love this you. Game being, <laughs> I'm resisting the urge to not just have this be a Jennifer Connelly love fest. If you're for listening, 15, Jen, if you're listening, Jen, come along. <laughs> She's going to guess in a <laughs> okay, month or so, so don't you worry. But, you know, I think that this game being so restrained overall is what allows me to be in it for the long run. And that's always been how I would recommend this game in that, you know, with the original, while I was appreciative of the, you know, bizarre and increasingly fucked up creature designs, it's partially one of my biggest qualms with horror games in general specifically typically american horror games in that they feel the need to layer and you know um 
Uh, Neil, what's the one that you and I can't stand that series? Oh, Outlast. What? Yeah. God, that was almost like a reaction. <laughs> yeah. How day. I love but Outlast. It's, uh, it's been... Well, this is going somewhere. It's... <laughs> That is that, a really influential game to talk about, influential games. Maybe not in the right ways, maybe not the right ways for everyone. I've opened yet another can of worms. It seems that's all I've done this episode. But my point is, is that like the reason I bounce off of that game is that it, it layers on the horror far too quickly for my liking to the degree that I'm like, well, this is not, this is like a fantasy mm. realm in that there's not going to be any tension for me um, because... It's the idea that you layer everything on so heavily mm. within the first 20 minutes that I'm kind of like desensitized, yeah. essentially. Yeah. You walk into a room, within the first five minutes, there's like 15 decapitated bodies, yeah. that type of thing. That's what I mean when I'm talking about it. And then in the know. next five minutes, there's a penis in your face. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Outlast <laughs> too, the way that starts, when you were talking earlier about, Jimmy, about you know dying very early on and just like being given a bit too much to start with, Outlast 2 was that for me, where it just threw too much at you straight away and I was like it just felt unpleasant at that point I was like I feel like I do need to go back to Outlast 2 because I feel like <laughs> it gets a lot of shit Outlast 2 and I, I think I like I it more than it. anyone else <laughs> I feel like I'm the only person in the world who likes Outlast 2 well, I feel we like... found your reason to come back now, there, you go, there so... you go I need to replay that because uh, I remember just playing the mill level and I needed to lie down afterwards and like an IV drip I think if anyone knows the number of someone who has any Class A drugs before we do that episode, I, I would be uh, quite advised <laughs> <laughs> to do this. But the reason that I reference that Outlast and the approach to that, and while you know it doesn't work for me, but I think that that's what was present in the original Evil Within, right? It's that you know every single thing you encounter is wrapped in barbed wire. Mm. It's so aggressively, mm. you know, the, just in terms of like the monster design right out the gate. Not to say I can't appreciate good monster design, but it's the idea that when you layer it on so thick early mm. on. There isn't a lot of like buildup necessarily. It's kind of like what Jimmy was talking about in the sense that like earlier we were mentioning that when I can't remember now exactly what you said, but in terms I say of like a lot of shit. dispelling I say the tension a lot of shit, early yeah. on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's all right. Neil and I do as well. <laughs> um, but it's the idea that, you know, when you layer things on so heavily early on, it's kind of like in horror movies, right? It's the reason why you shouldn't see the monster in all of its horrifying glory until the third act because. If you show it too early, then when you have the reveal later on, it's not going to be much of a reveal. And I think that in terms of the Evil Within 2, it's smart to have a larger world that's filled with, you know, more generic enemies. Because then when you do face one of those, you know, I suppose you'd call them bosses or, you know, special undead foes, um, they are far more effective and, you know, notable, I think. Stuff like the Guardian, right? When you encounter that for the first time, this massive mess of legs and mannequin parts and body parts, and it's got a giant saw for an arm. Like, that's pretty shocking when it bursts through the window. And there's another great little... And I do... I, I, to go back to a point I was making earlier about the design as well, I think that's another example of how much they did with what little... Well, relatively little they had. Because yeah. the way they animate... Right. The, the actual boss battle of all the body limbs coming together was quite, it's quite almost breathtaking the way that was done. And it all mm. congeals into this lovely mess. It's a game of really great little details as well. Evil Within 2. That, yeah. That a lot of people Good signaling as well. Yeah. You know, like before things happen, like, um, you think of the flamethrower boss fight, uh, later on, you know, you, you come to that room beforehand and there's these fucking things on the wall and you're like, what are these for? You know, like that. And 
it, it soon becomes clear that like, oh yeah, th- this is why I don't need yeah. these. But it's even the small things though that I really, really, really loved. That when you're creeping up on an enemy and then Sebastian like takes his knife out of his holster i love that and then that tells you like okay you can get there but then there's also the tension of oh can you get to them quick enough because the way because the way the upgrades work you feel really i think it'd be really interesting to do a run of the evil within two with no upgrades at all because i feel like that mm. way it would be maximum tension because you don't feel more vulnerable than when you're basically a little uh, an alcoholic with a pea shooter at the start <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's a point I meant to make earlier, right? In that I would, you know, when I was replaying it, I played through on casual mm. just so I could refamiliarize myself, be sure to be uh, ready to chat about it this week. But like, I really do think it's the type of game that is best served on playing one, sure. one of the harder difficulties, not only to, you know, capture that survival horror classic nature, but more importantly, when you have a game that has upgrades, right? And you're becoming more powerful, it kind of is working against the AI essentially. So the idea that, you know, by the last chapter the last two or three chapters like you are essentially a superhero by the end of it especially if you've been doing all of the you know collecting green gel and doing all the upgrades and all the side missions and whatnot you're pretty kitted out and your abilities and of course your weapons in that matter are going to be far more effective so it is best served i think to play this from the start as one of or on one of the harder difficulties just that way you know it captures that essence not only in uh, yeah you know, moment to moment combat, but especially when you're kind of like encountering those bosses, because then you get down to like the bullet math, right? It's like, well, I have this many crossbow bolts. I have this many shotgun shells. I have two sniper rounds, but I have so many things of gunpowder that I could get two of each if I get into a pinch type of thing. And when you play on an easier difficulty, like that essential magic is kind of gone from those encounters. No, well, no, I will argue this point, Uh, you know, obviously for us, that's different. Yeah, if, if you're a seasoned survival or a veteran, you are going to feel like that. But for people coming to it new, I think even on the, you know, the easier difficulties, if you did one shot kill, I think there are moments in it that would surprise and offer enough peril mm. that would make you still get an experience that would be very unique to you compared to what we would get. You know, it would be special to them. It would feel challenging, it would feel surprising and feel exciting as a horror game while still being something they think they, they're encouraged to continue with it and explore through. You know, it, yeah, it's like going on the kiddie roller coaster. You know, if you don't, you're fucking terrified of roller coasters. It's like, you're still going to get the same thrill that someone who loves the shit out of roller coasters does because you don't want to do it. But, you're getting a, a microdose of that that works for you. And what the, the options have added since then, I think really, really would work. You know, I, I think they would really help anyone coming into this who's curious about it and thinking, well, I don't really like survival horror games. This is the, it, it has enough options in there that you could enjoy it, whatever your level is, you know, going into that. I, I think it is a good one for that. For sure. I guess I was speaking more of like the three of us, right? People that are familiar with the genre and whatnot. I think that the fact that it has tiered difficulty in and of itself makes it more of an accessible Mm. of a survival horror game. Also, you know, for some of the things that we talked about, right? The fact that just because you alert an enemy, it's not guaranteed death in that regard. Uh, Even on the harder difficulties, right? You have this freedom to, you know, not only flee, but you have the option to go loud and that can be 
just as effective, if not more so at times. Um, but I definitely agree in terms of like whether or not you're coming to this as, you know, a seasoned veteran of survival horror games or somebody new, right? They're still going to feel a certain level of that intended yeah. terror and especially mm-hmm. like tension when they're encountering things. You know, some of the things that we've mentioned here in terms of just the way that those, you know, shambler type enemies, how they can be slightly unpredictable yeah. in their movements and their sways. Yes. Like, the, especially if you're on a crunch, it doesn't matter what difficulty, right? If you've only got yeah. three bullets <laughs> and the first two miss because you fuck up on a sway, one is not always going to do it no matter and the difficulty. And then that one it feels even more, there's even more pressure put on that one remaining bullet. And then you feel you clam in. It's great. It even has it even has its own Resident Evil moments uh, with the dogs in the evil. Within. I only noticed to go on about the open world union I love you can I come visit you sometime uh, right at the start when you leave the safe house you, there's a church and then you can go into the church and then there's a priest there going crazy and then he collapses <laughs> and then you're like oh he's going to approach him and he's going to say something about donating to the church or something and he's going to go oh but then as he's Sebastian's approaching him it's just in smash a bunch of zombies through the doors and the windows and it's that's, you don't need to have a high difficulty for that to make you shit your pants, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, this is it. I think it never tries to be relentless. You know, it never tries to say, here's a wave, here's a wave, here's a wave. Even in, like, a siege section that comes in the second half of the game, it doesn't feel like it's impossible. It just feels like a you know, the way it's presented, it comes from a point where you've done an entire section that's very different, and you wake up, to this whole new, oh, you're, you're in the middle of a siege like that and you have two angles, you know, it is when I was going on before about like, you know, taking established ideas from survival horrors post Resident Evil 4, it's that Resident Evil 4 siege mm. scene done anew and it works, you know, and it works really well and you can get a lot of tension out of that no matter how much you know because you are brought into it in a bewildered state. You know, yeah. you are, you're not just like, well, I came here, I walked up to here, I came in this building, I knew it felt like something was going to happen. You, you know, you are mise en scene. Yeah, you know, straight away, you're there and that's it. So you have to get up, get on with it. And I like that when the game does that and it does it a few times, that is really where I feel like it earns its corn because it just throws you into those situations out of the blue and you're like oh okay I, I was feeling comfortable with what I was doing and you know a lot of survival horror games are like that where you're like well I'm going to do this I'm going to go here I'm going to go there I know the route and then this stuff throws you off course because you don't know the map you don't know where you are you don't know what you have and yeah it, it works nice well I think that there's something about that, though, the approach in The Evil mm. Within 2 that differs slightly from sur- some survival horror games when they try to do that. And it's what allows this game to be so much of a hybrid, right? It being more action-oriented, but not being to the degree that, like, the idea of stealth or it being survival horror kind of goes mm. out the window. And those siege modes that you mentioned, there's one section in the second half of the game that is uh, essentially an escort mission, right? Yeah. You have to go through the fire, and you've got that machine that basically is a shield that protects you. And it's like, you don't have to be crunching bullets in the same way that you do for a long stretches of the game. And I think that for me, like that is more appealing, I think, than having these moments that 
are essentially artificial to the larger experience, right? Because those set piece moments are few and far mm. between. But at the same time, like you're given the tools that you'll need, whether it be health or ammo. So that way you don't hit that sort of frustration wall that you would typically, yeah. right? If you get into a siege mode and it's like, well, I've got six bullets and now you're in this situation that you're not going to be in for a majority of the game where there's, you know, hordes and hordes of enemies coming and now it's every bullet. I need to start working in some knife swings to, you know, mm -hmm. down them or, you know, injure them temporarily. Um, and I think that that is probably the best example of a hybrid of action, stealth and survival horror that, you know, I have come across in the genre. And it's something that I really am excited to see if they continue with that in the potential sequel or perhaps the next project that comes next from the studio, whether they want to do come back to something that's more horror. I do hope they. Do. I do hope they do stay to horror because they really do know horror. I like. Yes. I we don't have enough teams and studios and minds that know horror well and stick to horror because I feel like some some teams and studios these days get a bit too lofty. Like a, I think a good example of that is Platinum, who decided that Platinum Games, who did like a Bayonetta and Metal Gear Rising, they decided they wanted to do live service games and stuff like that, and it worked out terribly for them. And I feel like with them sticking to maybe the Evil Within, Evil Within, or maybe another Ghostwire, or something more horror, maybe just a nice lean eight-hour horror game they can put on Game Pass to say, look, look, Microsoft, we're doing stuff. Please don't shut us down. Then, yeah. maybe, and maybe, <laughs> then maybe they'll get more success that way. I feel like that would be the best thing for them. I, I find it criminal if. Microsoft with their infinite pools of money where they can, you know, the only reason they are in any kind of console race to this point is because they have that infinite pool of money. If they will not then give studios like this the, the reach to do what they want and to create games that maybe they don't hit critically, you know, they don't hit like a commercial level. Because, you know, you put it on Game Pass anyway, so what the fuck? I, I, I always think back to the Mark Kermode thing. It was like, it's like, you know this is going to make big money, so why not just make the best version of what it is? You know, it's like, you know, blockbuster ideas, fine. People will sit down, they will buy their ticket for it, whatever. Doesn't matter the quality of the film. So why not make a really fucking good one, and then you get the money... And the respect. Mm. And then that studio becomes as revered as a naughty dog, you know, because people are like, oh, wow, they're, they're like the horror connoisseurs at this, you know. That would be amazing for Tango if they got treated with that respect. Yeah. That they would be given an arcane, you know, if they were given that, where they're like, it doesn't matter. We're, we're not looking for you to make X amount of numbers for this to work. But my concern there is that Xbox is, you know, Microsoft's idea with Game Pass increasingly feels like Netflix's model. Yes. You know, yeah, in a lot of ways. And it worries me because yeah. then it's like, if you don't hit a banger, you're going to get, you know, hashtag fucking quote, whatever cancelled, you know, because you didn't do what they wanted. And that, that would be sad because in Microsoft's case, you get put on the reserves. I mean, compared to Netflix, so the thing that Microsoft had is they have that bottomless pit of money. Yeah, they I think always have it. I think they're putting the wheels in the fire. Whatever, the, what the hell's the metaphor? Wheels in the fire. 
Tires in the fire. What's, <laughs> what's, what's, what's the matter? Irons? Irons in the hey. fire. <laughs> so we often go through all sorts of bloody kettles in the fire, all the stuff. But, but whatever. I think stuff burns. Stuff, stuff's on fire. Everything's on fire. <laughs> Everything's on fire. I'm so hot right now. Uh, but they need just, they do need to start getting some, some of the studios they bought, they do need to start doing stuff with them because it feels like yeah. they've got a lot cooking. And it's taken it's like on a really slow, like low, low heat at the minute, but it's all cooking and it'll get to the point where we're getting lots and lots of games. But to your point, it feels like we're getting a lot of six out of tens put on Game Pass of late, you know, whereas mm. a lot of it is quality. And I do hope that there's still space on Game Pass, which is crazy to think. And in Microsoft Bank for people like Tango and stuff, I really hope we don't get. As much as I love Sony and with, with a lot of their games, they do, I really hope they don't do the homogenized Sony thing, which is no. Uh, which I is really, I mean, I'm me with you well. there because you know it's a big thing of like you know, Sony's big games, you know, in, on PS5 so far have been arcane and Bethesda games, you know, the Tango Gameworks. They have been the games that felt ambitious and that rubbish you know? open world game, whatever it was called. I mean, that was. <laughs> A thing, you know, to see that after playing something like Deathloop and even, ta- and even Ghostwire Tokyo, it's like, it just doesn't feel, it feels like a game by committee. Yeah. By comparison. Oh, you know, yeah. It, uh, I know this is not, it's a lazy comparison, but you know, a lot of Sony stuff now feels like very akin to Marvel uh, and mm, you get good, why that's, good, that's yeah. doing big numbers. And you know, it's smart on the part of Sony because they don't have the infinite resources. Microsoft have so to make something that will make bank like that brilliant works for them but it loses people like me who have weirdos you know, it loses the weirdos yeah, weirdos, yeah it loses <laughs> the weirdos like me who lost Sega when they were young and had to cling on to someone and there was PlayStation and now they're becoming less like that It'd be mad if Microsoft ended up being that company for me, because even now I'm like very suspicious of them, yeah, despite warming to them slightly more. But yeah, it, yeah, I've, during doing this podcast alone, you know, I've always found that now more than ever, PC has the advantage for me because it has creativity because of the freedom of the platform. You know, it's like, sure, it's got a fucking mountain of shit that you will never find on any other console on a console but it's worth putting up with because you, you get the good stuff you know it's art house it's that i would prefer you know a richard linklater before trilogy of games if you will to fucking getting every marvel film you know like uh, yeah i would like that as a an experience the thing that stuck in my mind all through my life like that. And I would like something that's punchy, that really gives a shit, that wasn't given a major budget, but has the backing of a major studio. Yeah, like this. Yeah. Like the Evil yeah, Within like 2. this, yeah. yeah. You know, I would like that. We don't get enough of that. I mean, No, we don't get enough triple A, like B, B-tier games. We don't really don't. Yeah. I was I, As I was playing this, I was thinking, when is the last time we had an original over-the-shoulder Third person horror game. Like, I couldn't think of any. Triple A with a big budget. It made me. Which is what is exciting crazy. about Alone in the Dark, you know? It's like, I know it's the license, but they're reimagining it in so much, in such a big way that, and 
that's exciting. You know, Swedish studio doing it. You know, so it's not one of the big ones. And, you know, the people behind it, it makes sense. And that's what excites me about it is because the people behind it and the understanding and what they're doing with it, it doesn't just feel like other people would, you know, not like the last Alone in the Dark was where it's a case of like, we're doing this because we have the license. You know, it feels like we're doing this because we love that and we want to make more of it. I feel Alone in the Dark Illumination was like a like a spiteful thing for tax purposes. I don't know. I can't. Ex- I can't. <laughs> it comes back to what I said about people in a fucking boardroom. You know, just pointing at things on a board and going like that, not really taking in the point of what they're doing. Just saying what's hot right now, multiplayer, co-op, whatever, and like that, and then just trying to make a game that's successful without ever thinking what the game should be. You know, and Tango whatever that's happened with them, they've always been given that. You know, they've always been given the, the the remit to do what they want to do. And that is what I hope will continue. And Bethesda do get a lot of shit, but I do think you have to give them a bit of credit for letting letting them letting their studios go a bit wild, a bit crazy. You, I don't think you'd get that at most other big studios, big publishers, really. Games like Fallout 76 wouldn't work. Yeah, it wouldn't get to survive in, in many other studios. Yeah, they wouldn't get the chance to build themselves up to be what they should have been in the first place. It's just nice to see sequels taking swings that are pretty large and can fundamentally rewrite an experience to a certain degree, which is something typically, you know, I'm thinking about the film world. Yes. Like you get to see sequels, specifically like horror sequels, that take these drastic changes and it's like, yeah, you're going to get part of the fan base or audience that's like well this is bullshit it doesn't resemble what came last but you know time is always kind to things that i think take risks granted you know not all of those risks or swings always pay off but it's nice to not see something be stagnant or you know whether it be games or movies and i think that you know if they had just tried to make an experience similar to the original evil within then it would be people like me that didn't or you know it seems all three of us that didn't get on with the original, and if it's more of that, then sure, you're going to appease the portion of that player base that's like, yeah, give us more of the same, but you can only do that for so many sequels before that fan base that you're appeasing gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and then that IP has no brand name recognition anymore or just loses the good faith that was given or earned, that's rather. Why- uh, by the that's original. why I'm so glad that Prey's done well because I really felt like Predator was yeah. like done. I felt yep. like Predator was yep. done though because like let's be real, most of the Predator fans are like 30 plus year old dudes, and that's getting yeah, <laughs> that's getting smaller. <laughs> uh, so and like after the Predator, and I thought Predators should have done a lot better. I love Predators. I maybe I'm a, alone in that. Yeah, Predators, Predators whips. Great. Predators whips. Uh, I've been I've been really put off watching the Predator because I've heard some really bad things about it. So I think I might skip it and go to Prey. What do you think? I'm a Shane Blackhall. So uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I love Kiss Kiss Black, Bang Bang. That's one of my favorite oh, movies ever. Captain, Jimmy, Captain, I'm falling in love with you. Captain, <laughs> Captain Fucking Magic. That is my yes. movie, man. Basically, the role that got him uh, Iron Man, isn't it? It is, yeah. That, that that's Robert Downey Jr. in the modern age. Look at all the tangents we've gone on. Yeah, like, sorry, <laughs> Evil Within Two. What a game! What a what, what a, a game. game! I love it. <laughs> no tangents always make for the uh, Neil and I. Always whenever we go on tangents, apologize to the guests. So it's nice to have a guest that loves a good tangent as much as us. And you know, the conversation is never not better for it.
But I guess in uh, in wrapping up on Tangents and Evil Within, uh, were there any elements of the game that we kind of glossed over that really stood out to you? Or did we kind of cover the major beats of uh, Evil Within 2? Um, I'm not so sure. I think we've covered a lot of the things that I, I could talk about for a lot longer, but also I'm well aware of just turning into a raisin. It's really hot in the UK, so <laughs> I, need to ret- I need to get back all of my body water. Uh, I was just going to say, one of my main things I would say about uh, The Evil Vin 2 as well, that is one of the best games at using just the colour black. I think I've, it's the, every use of black in it, it just feels amazing from the, like the, um, the deep place, what's it called? The, um, from Get Out. The Marrow. Oh, the, no, the, uh, the The sunken sunken place, place, the sunken place-esque places, uh, sections in, Evil Within 2, you really feel that black darkness. And it's just, I think, just the way it frames its cutscenes and everything, the way it frames, even with its really close together POV, which isn't for everyone, it really puts you in that world amazingly well. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, I think it's a horror game, again, that doesn't get enough credit for how cinematic yes, it is yes, in between. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's it's very, you know, it's easy to kind of be like, well, it's an open world and it's a stealth action and survival and this and that. But like overall, I think compare, it's funny that the original game had that uh, letterboxed style presentation. It felt like a college uh, student. I think that's, it was just kind of, of a... Yeah, exactly. It felt like it was, you know, Neil made the joke earlier. It's like, oh, you're going to take this survival horror game, but make it elevated, yeah, yeah. right? With that presentation. And in losing that, they didn't lose the cinematic sensibilities, I think, that really help make this game feel more... Again, more, not contained, but just a little more relaxed and just trusting that the audience will be there for the weirdness. We don't have to front load it. You don't have to make it super stylized right out the gate. You just make something that, you know, looks very pretty from the outset. And then you kind of like give a little breadcrumbs of the weirdness before you give them a whole loaf of uh, of general insanity. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Go to my local should... supermarket. You got, do you have any loaves of general insanity? <laughs> i'm peckish for some mania mania buttered mania but jimmy man this has been a long time coming Uh, we both were so thrilled to be able to get you here and chat about the evil within two and to get to uh pick your brain about a game that you know it seems like the praise was a little late uh in terms of the general consensus around this game but it's been great to uh have somebody that's as enthusiastic about the game oh yeah i'm i I think i'm one of its biggest fans but I, I now i realize there's a lot of fans out there so like i don't know I'm, I'm getting close to getting a picket together and getting demanding a third game and i know probably we won't get it but i'd love it i really do love the game i think like i said earlier it deserves even more re-examination deserves more love and i really hope like as time grows people go i give it it's due it really does deserve a lot every every kind word it gets it's not perfect game don't get me wrong but it is right. no but it's maybe that's, that's what makes it special. Yeah, it's yeah for sure. It's got that weird, uh, weird like rough edges to it as well. But it really is a special game, and I do hope even if if you're listening to this now, and I don't know why you listen to this if you never played it, but <laughs> <laughs> but go and play it. If you have played it, play it again, and then then tweet angrily at Microsoft demand a third game. Fr- yeah. Throw a hundred million. <laughs> 
quit at them to get this made. Absolutely, but we'll have to wait and see for the future of it. Uh, but you can be sure that if we do get another game, we'll be covering it here, and you know, hopefully, we'll uh, we'll bring you back for that, Hell if not yeah. something else Hell sooner. Yeah. But well, if you want someone, if you want some, the one person in the world who will defend Outlast Two, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> Feels like we're gonna have that. <laughs> okay, no, no. I was going to say, we've thrown enough mud at it recently. We're going to uh, yeah. <laughs> have to have somebody on to defend its honor at some point. Okay, I'm sure. I'll, I'll get, I'll get, uh, get, the, uh, get it on the download list. And yeah, <laughs> We're always for positive thinking towards any game. So it's like, the exception is the Resident Evil Netflix series, but this, it really is, you know, I, game-wise... Hey, at least it led more people to their favourite niche of porn, Zootopia porn. So. <laughs> We're broadening people's horizons, guys. Really, that's what that show was about. Give Disney more money. Yeah, I, th- I thought it was okay after the first, like the first few episodes was okay. I thought, and then it just, I blacked out and weird stuff was happening, and I don't know what they did to it. <laughs> it completely lost its mind, and then like. Uh, like a six, a sixty-year-old man was wearing a trench coat and being blade. It was odd. Yeah, I mean, put it this way: it, it's like when that weird mate says we're gonna go out for this place and this place for a good night out, and you know that their fucking reputation for picking good places is dodgy, and but you do it anyway because sometimes it's good, and this time it's like the worst version of the the night out. You know, it's like everything goes wrong. You get fucking punched in the face by a bouncer, fucking cops come and plant drugs on you and whatever you know it's like everything goes wrong yeah you, you eat too much insanity bread at the end of the night just... yeah that's it yeah the kebab you eat turned out to be someone's ass it just it gets worse you know it, it one of those bad nights yeah one of my writers described it best i think when they said resident the resident evil series is like someone is getting their com- memories of resident evil they played 15 years ago confused with the evil dead <laughs> oh my god that's good yes 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 and i said i'd done talking about that there you go. <laughs> i'm just the best at instigating conversations that we thought we had passed no you're just i think you're just really up. good at conversation in general man you're a great yes. host it's been such a pleasure to be on here you you're an excellent compare mm. whatever they call it Yes, he he is great at that. We say that Neil's the brains, and uh, and I'm the one that keeps the conversation yeah, moving. I'm uh, bring, it brings it back from insanity, Brad. Yeah, good. I get my little tags in, and I'm happy. But no, man, really, this is a pleasure. And you know, obviously, I've worked with you for a number of years now, and to get to uh, to chat in some depth, and that was outside our chat of a, with, uh, Jimmy an email Nellan, or Discord, has been a pleasure. And, you know, and, we look forward to uh, hopefully having you back in the future to pick your brain. Thank you for having me on. Chat, which was uh, it was great to be a part of, and you know, obviously. Obviously, would love to have him back again in the future. Yeah, as coastal buddies in that sense, you know, <laughs> we, we we know the perils of living on the coast in this country. It's like it's like living in Lovecraft, you know. <laughs> well, it's probably why I get on so well with you because you know, living in New England, right, not far mm. from the coast, uh, we share that in that regard as well. That's it. That's it. It's the natural connection. But uh, before we wrap out this week's chat on the evil within two we got a healthy dose of uh listener replies this weekend really which was you know we always love to see and we encourage people you know we do shouts on our twitter which if you want to follow along with show updates or you know 
reach out in terms of your thoughts about a game that we're going to be covering and want to share your opinion on them, uh, whether that be positive or negative, people should feel free to uh, tweet us at SafeRoomPod or, which is becoming more popular uh, with every week, uh, you guys can reach out to us via email at saferoompod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. So either at on Twitter or through email, please feel free to reach out. And uh, let's uh, start with, you know, somebody that we are both very familiar with, that being uh, Pacific Obadiah, who is the podcast producer for yeah. Bloody Disgusting, who, you know, works on a variety of podcasts and has helped us, you know, with our growth and development and things like that. But uh, for Evil Within 2, Pacific says... Evil Within 2 was such a departure from the survival horror grind of the first game. Despite the game mostly losing the scarcity elements and leaning into the action, thinks this game is just as, if not more horrifying than the original. The aesthetic and imagery of these two games is so strong. Truthfully, I found the second game easier to approach and a lot more fun to play. How does your experience differ? Which Evil Within did you enjoy more? So we kind of touched upon that pretty uh, frequently in our episode, right? The idea that we all in, as a group enjoyed the sequel more. Um, and it's interesting the way that Pacific puts this in terms of it being more horrifying than the original. Mm. You know, I would come at that and say for the original game, I think moment to moment, it might be scarier in certain regards from, mm. you know, the brief time I played with it. But I think overall, when you learn more about, you know, the emotional stakes of Sebastian in the second game and how everything's really intertwined in that, it becomes more of a horrifying experience overall, I think, yes. in terms of like his plight, the plights of others, you know, not that it is ever able to, I'm sure, capture the true feeling of being a parent, but it does a good job of distilling down the horror of losing a child in a way that is somewhat palatable, I think, for mm. people like myself that don't have kids, you know. Of course, no game would ever be able to replicate that perfectly. But the idea that in a short period of time with the sequel, it's able to establish Sebastian, his plight, and then you get to see that relationship with the daughter throughout the game. Uh, and that being his drive in a way that I found to be uh, very, very convincing. Yeah, I mean, it's always a linchpin for me where you have that as a story point when you have kids is does it work for you or does it not? I mean, for instance, Stephen King's It you know, resonated with me as a child of the same age, not as a parent, but it gained new significance when I was a parent because then you see it from a whole new perspective. And it's amazing like that. So what I find with a lot of modern horror when they do do that and they do sort of include kids in the guilt trip of horror is that is that it's a guilt trip you know it's trying to make you feel something and care you know like and sometimes you can bounce off that as a result you you don't feel as invested as you should you know i i noticed this strangely just because before we did the podcast tonight, I was watching, you know, I've been trying to sort of tick off films with my son to watch on it, and we watched A Quiet Place, you know, like that. And you know, normally he's very touchy about like family based, you know, death and horror and stuff like that. And he dealt with this a lot better in the context of what it did, you know, because it's structured in a way that isn't manipulative in the same sense you know it's like 
everything that story does makes sense to make it feel like the sacrifice of it is impactful and worthy. But so many of them, I, I think of the film Mama, for Ooh. instance, where it just feels like it gets nasty and mean with that idea very quickly and it, just, it doesn't feel earned at all. You know, and Evil Within never really pushes it too far with that, you know, with the family story. It, it has it as part of it. And yeah, you know, the whole thing of like blame is put there. But because of how the previous game goes, you know, and how this game goes, there was this vagueness to it that makes you feel you're never sure if you really are to blame for what happened anyway. And so you don't know quite how to feel about how Sebastian feels for a long time. I mean, I think it gets a little rocky towards the end where you know he gets that visit from his wife uh, effectively to sort of absolve him of blame. And where that could have been, like, uh, that's the catalyst to make everything right. And, you know, he's going to fucking John Cena his way out of this shit. He doesn't because he still then goes and doubts himself because of what uh, happens later, you know, and still then takes another beat to go, no, 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 I was right the first time. I Because, you know, the way the world works in that game is that it's treating his trauma like well okay we understand now that you feel like you might have got past it so we're going to just push that guilt on you a little bit more and, and make you doubt yourself that little bit more and then he he clicks past that and goes no, no no i can get past this i can do this i can be the better person and i really like that about you know what the evolving two does that you can get past that yeah you don't just go for the standard Oh, now everything's fine because he's accepted his guilt. Because it's never that simple. You know, it's like you can accept your feelings on something traumatic that happens in your life, but it doesn't mean you've got past it. It doesn't mean you've got over it. You can still be traumatized by that with recurrences, you know, and things that remind you of that. And, and while it is in a microcosm, I think The Evil Within 2 does push upon that a little bit you know where it does just give you a little bit idea of like no no, no. just you may think you've you know got over the, go over, got over the hump so to speak to get to this point where you are absolved and you're going to have your you know redeeming story and pushes you just that one more time to say no no no, no like everything's doomed you're fucked you can't do anything people will die under you you're cursed like that and yeah, it takes that one moment to feel different. Uh, yeah, it's simple as a plot device, but it doesn't get employed enough. And I, I think, especially in games, you know, so to have that there is magnificent. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that maybe it's because of the first time you play a game, generally speaking, like it can be overwhelming in terms of, mm. you know, the, the narrative. Again, we've talked about in our chat with... Jim, the fact that like this game goes in some wild directions and, you know, it it really does feel like a sprint to the end, but not in the traditional sense of like, oh, it's rushed. It's more so just like trying to get as much weirdness in there at the very end of the game and things go truly batshit, which is perfect for the conclusion of a game that, as we said in our chat, is largely restrained in just how wild and weird it could be. 
And we've seen that in the first game for the most part, or for part of uh, the experience and whatnot. So to see a game end when that restraint is completely gone, Mm. whether that be, you know, the enemies, the world itself evolving, or even just the emotional stakes, uh, I found to be a really, really fantastic just conclusion uh, Mm. that I didn't necessarily attribute the first time I played the game, just maybe because you know playing it the course of a couple of days and just like, Oh, I got to get this done for this or that or whatever and <laughs> everything. And now getting to like, give it breathing room, almost as much breathing room as the game itself has in many regards. I think Jimmy pointed out quite well when he said, you know, it's like just wanting to sort of revisit it for you know, research purposes that he felt like, you know, he was getting into it, just playing it because he wanted to play it. You know, I very much, you know, in that point, you know, I'm very much juggling a lot of games at the minute and like I was still having that. You know, I was very much coming back to this game. More than, you know, the game that we'll discuss um next this weekend, you know, is Bioshock, you know, like that this was the game that out of the two of them I was very much more into coming back to. Because I was like, Oh yeah, this is it feels like it has more layers, which is understandable because you know, it's like a nine years on from Bioshock. 10 years on pretty much and so it has a lot more to it and more substance that works in the, those minor levels you know it's not all about the shock value and the, like punctuating your point you know so i was very appreciative of having this extra time with it absolutely yeah and that's part of you know much like film unfortunately given the time commitment with games it happens mm more rarely than film right 90 minutes versus potentially 15 hours but that is something that is an unfortunate aspect of games in that time commitment because so many games i feel like the conversation would be different if more people revisited them granted there's people like you and i that you know we choose to dedicate an inordinate compared to others amount of time to games whether that be revisits or you know coverage in these things that we are the types of people that have that conversation but it would be just nicer to see that pool of, you know, reappraisals and things of that nature really cropping up more around games such as this. I think about our conversation with about Prey, right? Yes. And that, not only, you know, revisiting that game, but having that conversation with Aaron, with you, of course, like it just gave me such a more appreciation for that game, what it does and what further separates it from other, you know, immersive sims that have tried things similar, that have had elements, but how Prey is just like this fantastic uh, blending of genres that didn't get the same, you know, respect that it deserved. I think that it has now back when it was released and there's been more, you know, of a reappraisal of that, but sometimes it's a bummer that it all feels too little too late in some regards. Yeah. And uh, games are difficult like that, but just because of the way games have been, but I think in the last 10 years, the way games have gone, it's not as hard as it used to be to sort of reappraise games because Mm -hmm. they haven't evolved that much, which is a sad thing, if we're honest. They they should have because it doesn't all have to be about technical quality and, you know, visual wonderance. It has to be about, you know, you've got all this technology. What amazing, amazing things can you do with that? You know, what things can you do that you can't do in film? that works here and the truth is there are games that came out at the same time as evil within too you know that year i think it, you know what remains of Edith finch for instance you know and the games that really understand 
the core of what games can do and take it to levels that really just push it yeah, to a way that you could never, ever replicate it in any other medium. And it's just special because of that. You know, it's like Evil Within 2, you, sure, you could make a series or a film out of it, but it just wouldn't feel the same. You know, it wouldn't, you know, it, it does so much of its own shit right that feels interactive and feels personal to the player that, you know, when you go back to the Resident Evil problem of like when you adapt that for live action is you're either trying to go one for one or what they did, which is basically a copy of a whole bunch of stuff that already happened, or you're trying to just push away from that and do your own thing, which is often detrimental because you, you're pushing away from the truth of what makes Resident Evil great, you know? So yeah, it's difficult to get it right. I, I would always champion a game, especially in the horror space, that just cannot be done as any other medium. You know, it, it, it strives and revels in the fact that it is a game first and understands the rules and complications of that. And, you know, as we were talking about in the episode, you know, the meta nature of The Evil Within 2 is there to see. You can see it, absolutely. And it, you just cannot get anything out of that in any other medium. It wouldn't work. It would just feel ordinary and a shrug of the shoulders, personally, anyway, at least. Yeah, last thing I'll say on that is, like, I think that the meta nature of The Evil Within 2 it's well realized for that game and it definitely shines through in the second game. If we ever get a third entry in the series or if they ever try to, you know, do a new horror IP that dabbles in the metaverse, if you will, the horror metaverse, I would love to see how they can go further with that. Take it one step further. Make the player's impact on the world itself show in the environments or show in the characters. You know, not this arbitrary, you know, good and evil choices, but just every time the player makes an action or just their very presence, see that have some type of change in the world that doesn't feel as scripted, I suppose, or as planned, a little more organic. I think that could be Mm. really interesting just to see how they could play around with that. Um, But in getting into some of our other replies this week, uh, next up is at Broxton Ader, who said they played Evil Within 2 for the first time last month and genuinely enjoyed the experience. Felt a little like Silent Hill in its design and a great horror game in its own right. Uh, that's one thing that I hope I made the point in the episode where, you know, no matter how the game deviates from traditional survival horror aspects, at the same time, it definitely captures something akin yes. to a Silent Hill atmosphere, I think, which is really interesting. And, you know, I haven't played the later Silent Hill games past uh, Origins. I know that like Homecoming or Downpour were a little more action oriented. Granted, I am much more in favor of something like Evil Within 2 that has really refined gameplay, has more freedom to choose the types of routes you want to take uh, from a combat perspective, but at the same time capturing that very brooding atmosphere, which I think the town of Union makes for a really great backdrop to. Uh, next up is at Metal Mad G, who says, I think the Evil Within 2 is a big improvement on the first and kept the weird dream logic of the first game. Yeah, you know, they're not going to find anybody challenging that. We definitely 
appreciate the sort of dreaminess or the the swimminess of logic sometimes, which if mm. anything shows up in more interesting ways than one. Um, next up is at the dead fellow who says it's an improvement on the first in just about every way. You know, the three of us definitely, uh, definitely agree with that sentiment. Yes. I think through our talk with the game, <laughs> uh, next is at okay five high. <laughs> I hope I got that right. Uh, let's see. Evil within two is less tactical than the first game, but it can get brutal later on. I really love the new gameplay mechanics and how they expand on the last one. The visual effects are honestly some of the best I've ever seen. Yeah, you know, I I don't know if I would say it's less tactical. It's less moment to moment. The player's fate is in their hand. I think. It, you know, it's less based on survival. Free. Yeah. Yes. It, yeah. It, yeah. The original game is very much like survival to the hill. You know, it, it wants yes. to be a survival game in the. Uh, pre Minecraft sense of the word, if you know what I mean. But um yeah, it that, that makes sense. So yeah, by comparison, Evil Within Two feels very mild uh, in terms of doing that. But yeah, it has it. Yeah, like they say, it, it really does just have moments where you're like surviving by the skin of your teeth. And I think we mentioned during the episode and how, you know, going from one end one end of the map to the other to reach an objective can feel like this attrition so to speak the way you are just trying to get there by whatever means you have and you don't want to waste everything because you just don't know what you're going to expect next you know in the game so yeah is it i think it's a good balance that's the main thing it it balances things out nicely absolutely um next up is from our pal aaron bame who was on Mm -hmm. last week chatting hunt showdown uh, and he says evil within two caught me off guard with how much i liked it The first game did nothing for me, but the open-world nature of the beginning section of the sequel brought me back to the days of navigating the streets of Silent Hill while frequently checking my map. There's a ton of inventively creepy imagery throughout. Even if the more linear back half of the game didn't really reach the heights of the start, I'll always remember Evil Within 2 fondly. Yeah, you know, I'm of two minds of that. I definitely agree that the second half is more linear. It's not as open. You know, it reverts back to more of a traditional experience in the sense of the original Evil Within. At the same time, I don't know if they could recapture that initial, you know, mastery of the transition to the open world that they do with that first section of Union. No, and I think the big point of that is, as we pointed out previously, is that it makes sense for what the game is doing. It, it starts to focus more on story, but then it sort of pushes what you would expect of a survival horror story into new areas. Perfectly said. And last but certainly not least is our pal Harrison Abbott, who says, I have a soft spot for the first Evil Within because I think it's like the horror equivalent of Airplane. It just throws everything at the wall and hopes that something will stick. I'm only laughing because Neil almost spit his drink out because it caught him off guard. That's Harrison for you. (laughs) Uh, There's attempts at psychological horror in the vein of Silent Hill, which are completely at odds with all the chainsaw bloodletting, crazy monster action, and the finale where you get to shoot at a big kaiju with a heavy machine gun. The sequel is way more focused and knows what it wants to be. It also represents a technical improvement in every conceivable way. Yet, I'll be honest, I kind of thought it was a little bland in comparison to the original, sorely missing a lot of that signature Mikami madness. Still good, but less memorable for him. 
it doesn't help that you defeat the interesting villain about halfway through. Um, yeah, so I would say that I wish that that villain that we mentioned um, had not died when they die. I wish mm. that they had been more prevalent throughout. Granted, the story ramifications for that, I'm sure, would be very would be uh, destructive for the second half of the narrative arc. But for me personally, I definitely agree with him in the sense that that's the more interesting villain. And mm. I would say that the more interesting side of it is based off of, you know, the sensibilities that are seen through their actions. We don't gr- granted know a great deal about them or told a great deal about them, but I just yeah. found personally that that was a far more interesting villain than the villain that takes up the back half of the game for me. Sure. I, I, look, I We said this earlier in the game. I, I get that that is the general opinion, but much like Far Cry 3, I much prefer the villains that come at Heart of Vars. Mm. Uh, Buck being like the key thing in that game where I, I think he is a more fascinating villain because he feels like a person not like a meme you know it's like I know that before memes but it just doesn't mm-hmm. work right and Stefano I yeah, I have no qualms against that as a character because I think it is the perfect return to the kind of horror that Evil Within should be in a Shinji Mikami era. You know, it's Euro horror. You know, Stefano, you know, Stefano is like an Argento villain in so many ways, but like mm. exacerbated. Mm-hmm. But what comes after, you know, and I think we were pointing this out, you know, it's a script that is written by someone who's Japanese and then someone who's American and sort of mushed together. That is where you feel it. And it's the one time I think the American part of the script works. Mm. You know, it's it's going to sound disingenuous to point this out. I'm not going to say Texas Chainsaw. I'm going to say more The Hills of Eyes. You know, in terms of like this sort of out in the rock, you know, out in the middle of nowhere fucking fanaticism sort of vibe that you get from that. And that bit after that works for me in much the same way that Far Cry 3's sort of turn from Vars works for me. Yeah, you know, I, I I don't like the, the the poster boy as much as I like the guys that come after and have the really, really hard job of being like the one that carries the, the whole the rest of the game after that. You know I, in both cases I think they are the stronger for it because they have an expectation on them that is different and they execute it in a more serene, comfortable way. You know? I, I, I got you. Yeah. It works for me. Uh, I, I can totally understand why people like, you know, like a vase, like a Stefano, because, you know, I'm not saying I don't like them. Uh, I think they do a really good job, but I just, I can appreciate the second antagonist coming in and doing a job and it feeling uncomfortable, you know, in a way that, that works for the story. Yeah. If anything too, now that you mention it, like Stefano being the first major villain that you dispatch is probably what allows the second half of the game to work as well as it does. And it being more personal to Mm. 
you know, Sebastian, his plight and the fact that, you know, it becomes more of a family affair, if you will, in the back half of the game. Not to say it's not his initial motivation, but it could be why the first half of the game feels so welcoming in that it's very clear cut in terms of here's the bad guy. Here's my mission. I need to get through this character. Um, And then it becomes more about, you know, the setup in the past game and more of the world building and more of, you know, the conspiracy aspect. And so, you know, if anything, maybe that's an approach that other games that we've mentioned in the episode, right? Games that haven't really gotten the respect they deserve until much later after the release. Maybe it's because they didn't have an opening act that was very accessible in the way that something like The Evil Within 2 was, where it's Mm. clear cut, it's stylized, it's somewhat akin to the original, but it's not so much concerned with connecting to the previous game, um, which could be a possibility. But yeah, I definitely, I can see it both ways. And as usual, with talking it through with you, I'm definitely coming around more to... uh, to seeing uh, past my own, not criticisms, but some qualms, if you Such will. Such is my stubbornness. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's going to do it for our listener replies this week. And as always, highly encourage, and we love hearing from people, yeah. uh, hearing what other people do. Because, you know, as much as we ramble on, it's always nice once in a while to hear an opposing or just a different opinion than ours. Yeah. Um, but if people are, you know, so inclined, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at Pod. Or they, people can reach out to us via email at uh, saferoompod at gmail.com. And uh, more than excited to uh, continue with that. And we just want to mention there was um, one thing that came through on this. that uh, It was a bit long in terms of what you know, we, we asked for like a comment on, mm-hmm. on, on the game. But... Pers- I you know. I personally, for me, it spoke to me in terms of what it said. You know, it, it was very insightful. It was very in depth. So, hopefully, you know, by the time this comes out, we will include it as part of our blog post on bloody disgusting, and have that as part of the uh, blog post as its own little mini article within that because it was really insightful. And really did a great job at sort of getting into the you know, pluses and minuses of what the Evil Within 2 does. Absolutely, yeah. I got to just reiterate, like, really, really thoughtful, fantastic analysis. Yeah. A bit too long for us to read on the air just because, you know, again, it was... I mean, yeah, we're like two hours plus now. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. Like... <laughs> well, that's the thing. I think that we could talk about their insight for, you know, another 20, 25 minutes, but... We've already we're we're pushing the two hour uh, or two hour stop out point, but yeah, you know, as always, maybe have the caveat. Try to keep thoughts within you know less than a handful of sentences, but at the same time, we're just appreciative that somebody took the time to write us yeah, multiple multiple paragraphs about their really really well thought out insight. It made me look at an element of the game that. I hadn't thought about um, in as much depth, but yeah, we're hopeful that we'll be able to share that through our uh, blog post for this episode on Blade Disgusting. And uh, yeah, you know, as always, Neil, it is a pleasure chat horror with you for Safe Room. Yeah, this has felt like a very significant episode in that yeah. regard. Um, we, we're tackling one of the great white whales of uh, the horror game genre, I feel, in terms of being not like the most popular, but something that horror game fans love. 
you know, Pacific was uh, one of one of those people, you know, that, that was very enthusiastic about talking about this and getting people to talk about this for us. Yeah, we were very, very appreciative to that. And that in itself just shows you how magical what Tango Games Works does, you know, as a studio. Uh, in the future, I'm sure we will talk more about uh, Ghostwire Tokyo. We've talked about it in the, like, halfway game of the year episode, you know, as a game, but it's a game that once uh, we both get to experience it and uh, all that, and then we have a guest on, I imagine, um, we'll really push on and just show how, like, it is such, without meaning to be, it's such a unique trilogy of games from Tango. And um, there is so much to talk about. Uh, we, We... touched upon it a little bit here when we, when we were talking about it but it really is and as much as we have these sort of fan pleasing sort of resurgences for the likes of Resident Evil and we hope that there are remakes of Silent Hill games and stuff and Alone in the Dark's back it's nice to have a brand new you know franchise that has had you know post two hour chat about you know we are talking about the evil within two this much more than so many games in recent weeks because it is such a big deal in what it does you know it understands so much and christ we could have talked for hours more we really could we really really could and even without jimmy being on we could have done that i feel and it's just special in, in that regard. And I hope we don't lose that when, when we think of things coming forward, like the Callisto Protocol or Alone in the Dark or whatever. Uh, stuff that takes influence from the obvious and pushes it into new directions. I hope it takes the evil within route rather than the Resident Evil route, which is no detriment to Resident Evil. It's just we need variety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you and I have made a point to highlight games or to never make the focus of the show to be covering things just because they're new or they're timely or this and that, right? It's always once in a while covering something that's brand new, relatively new, but more often than not, I find you and I, you know, we have a great deal of flexibility, but also just like getting to expound upon games that even if you wrote an article about it, you know, you could be satisfied with what you produce, but at the same time, having a general free-flowing conversation and see, sometimes the best parts of the conversation, like any good conversation, it has nothing to do with the notes. It's just going off of something that somebody else said that they didn't chat about with you previously. Um, but I think highlighting games such as this are perfect for that. Yeah, I mean, Jimmy pointed this out very well when he said that. You know, it's like you didn't think you'd have much to talk about. And then before you know it. Well, I look forward to uh, as many and not more, but like, you know, passionate conversations such as this with you in the future and our guests. Yeah, absolutely. Till next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of Safe Room. If you enjoy the show, please rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Safe Room Pod for show updates. We'll see you guys next Monday.